Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Spoiler Warning Podcast. This is our 2018 recap episode where we're going to be counting down our favorite uh, top 10 films of 2018. I'm Christopher Schneezy. And I'm Stephen Miller. Uh, and uh, Carson Patrick will not be on this episode. Um, I know at, there's some people that have been writing in asking where Carson is. Um, he's not going to be on the episode technically. However, he will be here in spirit form, a malevolent spirit. <laughs> he may actually have more spoken word than anyone else on this episode. <laughs> um, but he wrote in, or not wrote in, he sent us an audio file um, to put into this episode. We are doing our best to split up that audio file and treat it as though he's sitting right here in the room with us. And uh, we're going to do our best to interact with his audio file as though he's in the room and respond in semi-real time. Um, so this will be an experiment. Uh, I don't know when this episode is going to come out, um, but it should be cool. We're going to do as much as we can in real time. I got his audio split out separate. This is going to be a fun episode. Just after editing like 12 episodes back to back, you just felt like you need another challenge. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, but yeah, so here we are. Top 10 films of the year. Mm. As always, Stephen, uh, let's go around the table. Uh, unfortunately, Carson does not have audio for this question. Um, but uh, how is it that you kind of go about creating your list? Um, because obviously, we're you know, this is our. I, I always refer to this as the recap episode. Mm-hmm. Um, it's technically our top tens. I always do my best to say this is my favorite ten films, not the films that I think necessarily are the best, but like my favorite, the list style list <laughs> right um so how did you create your list i i agonize every year and this year it was probably even worse than usual i think like we were discussing how many movies we saw this year were both north of 100 um yeah. of things that came out but i don't think the agony is because i saw too many things i think it's because the like that number doesn't do justice like what percentage of the things i saw i saw because i genuinely thought they would be really good like this was not a year where we did a million episodes about like shitty random movies that came out one weekend. <laughs> we did not do some shitty random oh, movies. Oh, sure. That came we did out. some of those. It wouldn't be the spoiler warning if we didn't. But yeah. this was a movie where we did multiple film festivals. We did lots of like pre screenings. We really, really sought out a crap load of movies. And yeah. looking at the year in review, like I've mentioned to you, I made a short list of like 30 movies of things that like absolutely had to make a top 10. So right off the bat, top 10 can't possibly mean the best end of story like there's just no way of doing it and i think anyone who sees enough good movies in a year knows that like you can't possibly name in order the best movies end of story right yeah yeah best means so much to different people it's how are you feeling what are you in the mood for right now sometimes there's an element i can't explain this to anyone else who asks me of why like i'll stare at my list and feel like even though i agree with all of those movies i don't like that list right yeah like, yeah I want the list to have, like, different aspects. I don't know. Like, like I want it to celebrate a thing that I enjoyed this year, even if, like, that type of thing maybe wouldn't survive a top 10 flat ranking. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, basically, I just I wrote down everything that I knew I loved this year, and I jotted down. So, number, like, one, two, three were pretty much set in stone. The rest fluctuated up until literally, like, the moment we started recording. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I just wrote it out, I stared at it, 
I thought, what don't I like about this list? I tweaked things, I stared at it, and I, then I just continued until finally I like didn't hate it yeah. completely. Like the old woman at the diner in Hell or High Water, you were like, Stephen, what don't you want? Exactly, yeah. And, and so I even made some parameters to make my life easier. For instance, I am refusing to put any documentaries on my list Ooh. this year, and I'm refusing to put things that are practically documentaries <laughs> I'll, I'll get into that a little bit later so bohemian rhapsody is not making it on your list yeah, we'll, we'll talk about it we'll talk about it. what what is your method christopher um so i mean i i think when we get to this question or statement or kind of qualifier every year i think that you and carson have a harder time than i to narrow down the very top year list i feel like i there are things I'd like in a year, and there are things that I really, really like. And I feel like I always get to the end of the year, and if I'm making a list of things that I genuinely like, then I'll, I'll arrive at 30-ish films mm-hmm. that like were like, oh, yeah, I, I really liked all these. Um, but if I'm like honest to myself and be like, which of these films would I have not possibly passed up to watch this year, it tends to be much smaller. And if it's the things that I want to shout to the heavens about, it's even smaller than that. <laughs> and I think that I have a heart – like. It, it was you guys that pushed me to go from top five to top ten. Like, the very first iteration of our end-of-year recap episode was a top five. God, and then, I can't even imagine that now. <laughs> and I think We'd that, be in bed so early tonight. <laughs> I know. Um, but I think for me, it's a sort of thing that, like, it's really easy for me to go, like, these are my top three films. And then if I have to force in a, a, fi- a four or a five, then it's like, all right, well, what do I really want to show here? And then the rest of them are kind of just like, what am I going to chop off slowly from the list? So what I did, I made a big spreadsheet of everything that I saw, put a one, I made a second column, put a one next to everything that I thought was good. Mm-hmm. Then once I had that, I made a new column and everything that had a one, I put a one or a two to separate into things that could be in a top 10 and things that could be a thing. You get then some I, formulas in that bad boy? <laughs> no formula. <laughs> screw that out. All analog-ish because it's still a digital spreadsheet. Um, but then I make another column and I start to do one, two, and three to kind of separate things that would be top five, the rest, and then maybe not make it in. And then I have another column, which is the ordered list. Um, I am a crazy person. Yep. <laughs> I am well aware of that. I feel like you just invented decimals in like the most complicated <laughs> way possible. But that is how I arrive at my list. And, and like normal form, there was like, I knew what was number one. I knew what was going to be two and three. Those were easy. And I knew what I wanted to be 10. Everything else was where do I put everything in that list. So the 10 is, again, a good example of how even for you, it isn't a complete stack rank. Because like sometimes like nine, 10, whatever, those are magical spots where you can be like, I want to talk about this fucking movie. <laughs> I don't. I don't care about how perfect it was or not. Like yeah, I yeah. need to talk about this one. Yeah, and, and that's that's the thing is I, that's exactly it. Like I knew the second I left the theater, I was going to put this this film at number at number ten because I was like I, I this movie is freaking crazy. So this movie is awesome, um, and I just really wanted it to be there. And um, that's really where it came into the most difficult part of making this list because it was like, I put something at number 10. Now everything has to go around that. Yep. And it makes it really, really weird, which is why this is these are not the 10 best films by a long no, shot. There's or by, no such thing. Yeah, yeah. These are just the films that either surprised me or tickled me or did something for me that made me want to celebrate them the most. And this is my most cele- my top 10 most celebrated films yeah. of 2018. I think mine, so we've, over the years of this podcast, I think, if nothing else, we've distilled what is it about us that we try to express through movies, yeah. right? Like, what is it that we value the most? What is the thing that is going to be the most Chris-like movie of the year, right? And I think for me, 
it kind of changes, right? In the early days, it was kind of all pure, like, indie emotion. And then it kind of it <laughs> and shifted. Yeah, I, I've been through, like, depressing drama eras, the, the, the famous um, Dallas Buyers Club age of this for the warning. <laughs> um, and in, in recent years, it's been kind of turning into... It's it's always like what is the emotional message or the emotional statement that isn't the same as a message movie, yeah. but it is like I like movies that I can remember now because I remember what it made me think about and what it made me feel. And I think like when making these lists, especially, I have a tendency to think like what are the salient feelings of the year that I want to like try to summarize with the list. Yeah. So in whittling down a ten, that's kind of what I did. I'm sure I'm gonna write like a top. 10 pairs or 15 pairs or something later that's going to look nothing like this. I'm fucking inconsistent. I'm sorry. <laughs> that's just how these lists work. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that is how they work. Um, uh, so, rather than talk about these lists, why don't we talk about these lists? All right. <laughs> All right. We're going to start off. We're going to dive into our number 10. Wait, can 10. we make a prediction first? Uh, yes. How much overlap do you think the two of us will have this year? I, I honestly, I've, I've been thinking that as I was comprising my list, and it's not that I think my list is magical or separate than anything else that you might put, mm-hmm. but I feel that, like, there are some years where there's huge overlap. Yeah. There are some years where there's just a few key overlaps. I think I think at most we're going to have, oh, this is such a, not, not that I have to say it out loud, this is difficult. I'm going to say at most three film overlap. Yeah, I'm giving us three. I think three is the right number. <laughs> we'll see if that happens. All right. <laughs> Zero with Carson. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That is true. We are recording in real time our reactions to Carson's audio, but we have listened, in some cases, multiple times <laughs> to his audio track. Mm-hmm. So here we but, go. But we do not know each other's list at all. So we, yeah, yeah. Is... So a- as usual, we always keep our list separate. Um, because Carson was re- recording remotely and we wanted to try this experiment to kind of edit his audio into the episode as if he was with us. Um, we had to obviously listen to his audio and prep it to work it in through the episode in real time so we can record it. I was just thinking <laughs> last year's episode when Carson announced that he was not going to be a regular on the podcast anymore and it was to make room for other co-hosts <laughs> and all we're doing now is cobbling a Frankenstein <laughs> Static recordings of cars. <laughs> it would actually be funny if this was like just calls that we had had with him through the year that weren't episodes that were his reviews of films. It's that just he our wanted. like shrine to Carson. <laughs> I mean, we did make a bubblegum sculpture of him in the corner sure, yeah. of the room. And by bubblegum, I mean feces. <laughs> I told you you need more fiber in your diet, Chris. All right. If we haven't lost everybody... We promise this review is these reviews are going to go well. Here we go, Stephen Miller. Start us off. What is your number ten film of 2018? I'm I'm laughing because this is like the least th- appropriate film to follow with bubblegum. <laughs> I, I need to I need to shake things up. Can we do like a like a Carson palate cleanser? Like Carson starts us off. You want to start off with Carson? Yeah, uh, we can do that. All right, Carson Patrick. <laughs> What is your number 10 film of... Also, <laughs> Carson did not pri- provide a top 10 list. He provided a top 20... Well, he recorded like 16... No, no. He recorded like 13 and then an honorable mention. 
to fit into the audio, we had to drop a few things. So these are not technically completely in order. We just took things that we might be able to respond to and put them in. And yeah, yeah. so this is what he will henceforth be known (laughs) as the canonical top 10 list from Carson Patrick. The top two are 100% him. He says it in the audio that this is his one and two. But this counts as number 10. Here we go. The Nutcracker in the Four Realms, another very underrated movie this year, I felt like, uh, which is also on here, obviously. Um, I mean, talk about... This is, like, definitely the crimson peak of this year, right? There's, like, very little story. It's all about the visuals. The vi- It's like a decadence porn. Like, it's just... Decadence overload, you know, like it's just the the visuals and the costumes and the production design are all just like very like Aquaman. Like you can't like there's so much to look at in each scene, you know, like they're and they're the very like traditional like all of the sets were built and made. I mean, there's a there's a lot of CGI in it, too, but just the the craftsmanship of how they built everything. It felt very throwback. Especially for for Disney, it felt a throwback in that sense because it just it was a very like rich looking movie. They shot it on seventy millimeter, so it looks even more just decadent, decadent, you know. Um, and Keira Knightley plays the Sugar Plum Perry in this, and it's one of those performances where you're just kind of like, I fucking love this. Like it's it's a it's like completely just steals the whole movie um in a way that you know we've always i feel like we know that we all we know that Kira Knightley is a great actor um but i don't know it was kind of like it was kind of like one of the like a Colin Farrell and an in Bruges moment you're like oh yeah like Kira Knightley's the shit like it was one of those type of like haven't really seen that style performance from her before uh and it was really just fun to watch um yeah, so I think, uh, oh, well, you know, we've got some, uh, well, you know, I probably should wrap this up because I'm sure Chris is tapping his watch. But uh, <laughs> anyway, um, you know, uh, is, uh, well, that's okay. Anyway, I don't know what I'm talking about. We can cut this out. Um, but they didn't cut it out. So that's Carson's canonical number 10 um, for the list. That's The Nutcracker and The Four Realms. I believe neither of us saw this film. Nope. Uh, came out at the beginning of November, which I think was the start of our craziness, where we yeah. were reviewing a ton of films, which you wouldn't technically know if you subscribed yeah. to the feed. Because our very last later. recording was almost two full months ago from now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which uh, might be why we might be a little rusty. Or we might be just exciting and refreshed. I don't know Mm. how this review is going. That's up to you guys to tell us. Um, But yeah, so I mean, uh, we don't have a lot to comment. I don't think even on a given time where there is a good enough schedule that we would have been excited to see this film. Um, I think we have in the past done reviews of some of the other, the Alice's in Wonderlands and the other Alice in (laughs) Wonderlands. Which one was that? Pan. Oh, yeah. Uh, So we tend to see these films, um, these live action kind of crazy heavy CG films. I don't think we're ever excited for them, but uh, we have talked about it in the past. And I'm sure they probably all went a little like this, where we didn't care. Yep. And Carson was excited for the visuals and the spectacle and the crazy performances. The decadence. The decadence, yes. Um, but yeah, so refresh now, Stephen. You ready to yeah, jump I'm, into I'm, your number I'm 10? Refreshed. Um, so mine, so I, I mentioned that I'm keeping documentaries off my list. 
and movies that are like so blurry between fiction and nonfiction that they might as well have been documentary. And I'm going to like break that rule immediately. (laughs) Um, I think the real dividing line wasn't about like truth or fiction, but about whether it had to be a fiction movie to tell the story it wanted to tell. So like Minding the Gap is a documentary that probably would have made like my number two if I were doing that, but documentaries are not included on this list. Films like The Rider, they weren't documentaries, but they easily could have been. They were like meandering, slice of life. The line between like the actor and the real world is so blurry, like... Whatever. Those are both great movies. They're not going to be on my list. Um, (laughs) The film that I'm talking about had to be exactly the way it was to tell the story it wanted to tell. And that's a movie called The Tale uh, that was on HBO. Uh, And it's a film by Jennifer Fox, who's a documentarian. And the reason I needed a palate cleanser is this is a heavy, heavy movie. Um, Have you seen this movie? I have not seen it, but I have listened at length to conversations about... Yeah, uh, it's like how good it is and how uncomfortable it is, and yeah, yeah. So I, it's it's one that I I want to watch. I just don't know when I'm going to be in the mood to yep. watch it. Well, well, that's the thing. It's very difficult. So Laura Dern plays uh, the adult Jennifer Fox, who she just discovered an essay she'd written when she was in probably eighth grade. She was 13 years old, and the essay was about her quote boyfriend, her relationship with a 40 year old man, um, and. Up until this point in her life, she's kind of like, yeah, that was a thing that I did. You know, I was a rebellious kid. My mom wouldn't have understood. And at this moment, she suddenly realizes, like, Jesus Christ, this is, like, a very fucked up part of my past that I need to reckon with. And the result is, like, exactly as intense and uncomfortable as you think it would be, but not in the way you think it is. So you would think a movie about childhood abuse uh, would be, like incredibly dark and dour and just like very devastating over and over and over again. And instead this kind of has that like fluid, eerie dreamlike quality of like the Virgin suicides, for instance, Uh, or there's some documentaries too that play with fact and fiction, like the stories we tell that kind of get into this too, where this is really about playing with the form of autobiography where she's looping over her past and thinking about these moments that at the time she kind of blocked out. Um, and kind of revising along the way. So the logic of the film is very dreamy and eerie. Uh, Elizabeth Debicki is definitely a standout here as this woman who kind of allowed these things to happen. And she stands in her past as this almost like fairy tale like perfect chilly person. She's basically seeing her the way that a 13-year-old would have seen her as this woman that she's idolizing who is just mysterious and can do no wrong. Um the the famous scene in this movie that pretty much anyone who talks about it discusses with the revision is for the beginning of the film, the character who plays her is probably like 16 or 17, and she's supposed to represent the age that she thought she was at the moment this happened when she was a rebellious girl who was dating an older man. And then partway through the film, she sees a picture of what 13-year-old lo- her looked like, and she realizes just how young 13 is. Uh, that will come up later in my <laughs> film <laughs> film reviews. Um, and from then on, from th- from then on, the film just completely changes, where it's a different actress playing this character. And there are things like that that it's just such a interesting exploration of like grief and pain. And it's never just dour. It's never woe is me. It's very much about like how do I reckon with these things in my past and how do I cope with them now. And it. It's just a really, really interesting movie. I never want to see it again, ever. Yeah. Like, one time is enough. But I think everyone should see it at least one time. It's a really, like, powerful use of 
how fiction can tell a non-fictional story in a really interesting way. Yeah, like one, one I, I hadn't really heard much of it. I knew the title and knew that people were kind of singing praises of it. Um, and then I listened to some people talking about what it actually was. And I was like, oh, I need to see this, but I, I just don't know when. I, I should mention Common plays a romantic interest here, like the adult uh, husband of, of the Jennifer Fox's character. And I still maintain... Common is distracting in literally everything he's in. There have been at least three movies this year where Common was the most distracting part. But this movie is so goddamn good, I didn't even care. I believe Common in it. <laughs> All right. So uh, my uh, my number 10 is a little less serious uh, subject matter. Um, but it is a film that I saw, honestly, on a whim. Just completely was like, out of nowhere, I had not seen a trailer, had not seen anything. I just saw the title of this film, had no clue what the title meant. And then saw the poster and was like, I'm probably not going to see this film. Um, but decided, fuck it, Alamo's doing a screening. There's a director present. There's cast members present. I'm going to go see what this film is. Um, this is the film Bodied. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> which is about, uh, basically, there's a young young man um, who is the son of, first of all, filmed by Joseph Kahn. Um, it is about a young man who's the son of like a... English professor or something, somebody who's like well-written person, and he is trying to figure out what he wants to do his thesis on in college, and he decides that he is going to do his thesis on like underground rap battles. Mm. And essentially, like from the moment this film starts, it is fucking amazing, oozing with style. It is just, it, it is so, it is such a fun ride, and it's really incredible the way it handles like following the subject matter in a way where it's like this kid is so obsessed with this underground rap battle scene that like he treats the individual rappers sort of like they're Pokemon where he knows their stats and like what type of rhyming they like to do and the type of insults they throw during these battles. And the fil- every ounce of this film is like there's like After Effects overlays type of things where it's like characters are doing things and you're seeing like as they like do guns with their fingers, you see like actual like <laughs> – bullets flying out of their fingers and it's super crazy Mm -hmm. it's ridiculous the the rapping is great um and it's just it's a scene that i knew nothing about so i didn't see this because like oh i used to be really into underground rap battles but it was just a thing where it's like this seemed weird and strange went to go see it incredibly incredibly fun um joseph gone had a great a great quote um while he was talking about with this film because the film is is slightly it it references eight mile in a number of times um, because the lead is a white kid a little white kid um and uh, in, in the film, or Joseph Kahn, when talking about the film, he said 8 Mile was a film that asked the question, can a white boy rap? And this is the film that asked the question, should a white boy rap? <laughs> and I just thought that was a fantastic quote. The film is incredibly fun, incredibly energetic, um, really heartfelt, too, in a way that, like, as characters have to go up against each other and talk, like, you care for, like, what is happening with this lead and his relationship with the other people that are kind of taking him under their wing. And it's it's not it's not just the normal story where the one outsider comes in and he's perfect at the thing. It is a messy story about a kid who just wants to excel at this one thing that is really interesting to him. And uh, I had such a fun time with it. The Q&A was great. <laughs> um, it it was uh, yeah it was just an, an amazing time did not expect it just walked into the theater to see this film and walked out going like oh shit that was crazy <laughs> people need to see this film and like i feel like nobody was talking about it yeah. um and that's why i knew it was like this has this is going on my list it was one of the most fun experiences i had all year in the theater and i think that more people should see this film and uh yeah 
it's it's fun. And uh, I told you a few times. I tried to be slightly. I was like, I was like, I'm, I'm, you should you should see Bodied if you have a chance. It's pretty I, I know, cool. and I I had that in my mind, and it never like tipped. <laughs> I, I was probably like traveling or something during that time. I don't yeah. remember exactly, but. This is the good thing about a list because I will definitely see it now. It was already like on my radar as a film I had missed that I got to catch up on, but I wouldn't have guessed it would make your list, and now I know. Yeah, it, it, I mean it's probably available for streaming now. So, yeah. <laughs> all right. Um, so now we're going to move on to our number nines. Um, do you want to jump to Carson again, or do you want to flip the order? <sighs> Ooh, I don't know. I, I think we can flip the order. Okay. So, so from now on, we'll be doing our numbers, and then Carson will end with his number. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, so my number nine, again, I'm continuing two trends here. One is breaking my own rules. Uh, <laughs> in this case, <clears throat> this is a film we've talked about already when discussing our lists, but I don't think by technical standards it came out in 2018. I think technically it came out midnight January 1st was when it actually <laughs> went wide. But we both saw it at Tribeca in April. <clears throat> so by my standards, at least, that's going to count. Um, it's also continuing the theme of grief, which is going to be, I found a very common theme throughout this, uh, <laughs> this list. Uh, I've been thinking about grief a lot for a number of reasons, political or otherwise. Um, and this is a movie that, as far as I can tell, 100% of critics either slept on or actively didn't like. Uh, it came and went with like such a blip. I'm super curious if I were to watch it again, not on the festival high, if I weren't riding that wave of Tribeca. We were watching like two movies a day for two weeks. If, and if cast members weren't literally sitting yeah, just a few rows away it, from exactly. you. Exactly. Like, like, would this still work on me the way it was? Like, like, I'm starting to question my sanity. Like, maybe the high just did it. But fucking, I don't care. I love this movie. I don't even want to watch it again because I want to keep that feeling of loving it that I had the first time. Uh, so here are the important bits about this movie. Uh, it's a brooding, impressionistic, neo-noir film with an electronica soundtrack set in Brussels, mostly at night, starring Catherine Waterston, Michael Shannon, in a romantic role, uh, Dario from Game of Thrones, and a Eurotrash <laughs> Luke Evans. How the hell is this not everyone's favorite movie of the year? Wait, uh, isn't, isn't Eurotrash Luke Evans redundant? <laughs> <laughs> Burn. Uh, I'm talking, of course, about State Like Sleep, uh, Meredith Denlek's movie. Um, and this is a movie that... There have been multiple films this year that kind of tried to do that neo-noir thing. Gemini is one of them that tried to just build dread, build an atmosphere, and let you kind of float in it for a while. And I feel like this movie just knocked them all out of the water. Um, it's a film about grief. It's a film about uh, kind of going from numbness to feeling something again. Uh, Catherine Waterston plays a woman who lost her husband about a year ago, and she's finally returned to the scene of the crime or the area where they, he, he used to live. Uh, so she can gather his things and put a closure on it. And the film just becomes, on the one hand, it becomes a mystery where she's trying to, quote, solve what happened. But it's also an emotional journey where she's starting to open herself up again and look at life and kind of coax out these feelings that she had let freeze up until that point. Uh, Catherine Waterston is just so goddamn good in this movie. I mean, she's always great, but she's usually playing a kind of like enigmatic character a character who's like off to the periphery who you can't read you don't know how she's feeling and here she's very much like raw on display the camera is on her face like 90 percent of this movie when it isn't it's on michael shannon and, and, and sometimes the camera is literally on her face yes. as she is a photographer <laughs> yeah yeah exactly uh and when it isn't on her face it's on michael shannon's who is also playing so against type here as like a romantic romantic lead is the wrong word but he he is not a 
disturbing character. He's not the enemy of this movie. He is a human being who's yeah. opening himself up to her. He's definitely a, in a complicated situation. Sure. Yeah, um, yeah, he's in a complicated situation. Um, but this movie, it, it just takes its time. It enjoys the ambiance of it. Uh, it has certain bits of dialogue that have just stuck with me so well. It, just like... I thought this was movie magic. I thought it struck exactly the tone the director wanted it to strike. And I'm honestly bewildered why no one has seen this or is talking about this movie. Because I, just from the cast to the execution, I, I just think it's like a beautiful, beautiful film. And I would say I can't wait to revisit it. But again, I had such a great time the first time sitting behind Sam Waterston, <laughs> near Catherine Waterston. Michael Shannon was like in pajamas or something. <laughs> he was, he was in like a, uh, like a raincoat that was... It looked so much like like a like a, just a bathrobe um, that it was amazing. Mm. But yeah, I, I just think this is a great movie about the slow process of like denumbing yourself, of like going from grieving to feeling pain to feeling joy, and kind of the the arc that it takes. It it's just right up my alley. I think it's great, and it's available on streaming now, so everyone can go see it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, State Like Sleep is an amazing film. Um, I I think I loved it just as much as you. At the festival, I think I loved some other things more than you, which is the only reason why, like, when we got to our stack ranking yeah. of that thing, I, I pushed a little, a few things higher than it. Um, but it is a really, really interesting film. Like you, I have not yet revisited it, but we did have tons of conversations where we were like, it wasn't even that we were like, why is nobody talking about the film? It was like, why has there not been a trailer? Yeah, why is it not or being released? A release date? Yeah, what is happening? Why is everybody sleeping on this film mm-hmm. um, in a state like that? Um, <laughs> but, but it was just one of those things where it was like, where is it happening? And then they finally released the trailer, and I'm like, why are you not even trying to put it in this year? And why are you dropping it at the beginning of January, which is like historically the worst time to drop any film? Yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it, it very much saddened me. Um, but uh, yeah, so mm-hmm. great film. Agree. Yep. Um, my number 10 film uh, is not State Like Sleep, uh, or my number nine film, sorry, is not State Like Sleep, um, but it, it has some uh, overlapping themes. Mm. Um, it involves a person who is trying to investigate something. <laughs> uh, they're trying to put together some pieces about what happened to somebody that they love. And uh, <laughs> are we talking about the aforementioned? Uh, we are talking about a film that is not neo noir, mm. but it does have an overlap. In an actor within the film. <laughs> oh my. Uh, <laughs> um, and after I say the name of the film, I will pause for about three seconds while Carson screams and throws something out a window of his apartment. But my number nine film is Searching. <laughs> nice. Um, this is a film that, um, I mean, when I think, I think tra- uh, when the trailer came out, Carson even said, Pfft, Chris's number one film of the year or something like that because this is only number nine burn Carson (laughs) but this is exactly the type of film that would jump out for me um I I was totally on board with the shtick uh we had that line in our review where I talked about I just like vector images moving around the screen um it, but I, I really think that this is a film that is not just about the gimmick it is a very very compelling story um the father character goes about the investigation of what has happened to his daughter in a very reasonable manner. He makes moves that like are even like smart, like, oh, I wouldn't even have thought of doing that. And it's just watching him progress into not madness, but just desperation as he tries to find out what has happened to his daughter as he spins things in his head about what might have happened and who might have been involved. I just thought that this was an amazing film. Um, on my trip to Japan, I watched this like, 
probably five times on other people's screens <laughs> as I listen to the podcast. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when I was traveling, too, everybody was watching this movie. Everybody was watching the film. And that's the thing is, like, it's a very visual film, and I know the story, and I can literally watch it with no sound and be like, fuck yeah, this movie's That's going to come up later, <laughs> BT dubs. <laughs> nice. Um, but, uh, but yes, it, it was just I, – I thought it was um, – I thought it was an incredible film, and I know that some people dismissed it. I know that some people on this podcast didn't like it as much as I did. Um, I think we even joked about it being on my top ten list, and I was like, it's probably not going to make it on my top ten list. But when I sat down to look at the things that came out, this was the thing that got me the most excited about it. And, like, you know, I've listened to some conversations with, you know, both the director and uh, the actors and, like, just talking about what the amount of work that went into making this film and making it right and not just being, like, we're going to do some cool screen stuff. It'll be pretty fun, guys. Um, I just, I, th- I thought it was great. I thought it was a great film. And because of that, it makes my number nine. Nice. Uh, so <laughs> you, and I, you and I reviewed this uh, on the podcast. I, I, liked, I liked searching. I think, I think you and I and Carson all maybe agreed that this is probably the peak that that genre can be. Yeah. Given the conceit of it existing entirely on a computer screen, I think it, it's amazing what this movie managed to pull off. My only feeling was, is that constraint worth it? Like, I'm impressed that they managed to tell that story. I'm amazed that they managed to squeeze that much emotion out of that, like, tight a constraint that they put themselves in. To me, it was only a quite good movie. It it didn't, like, leap over into amazing because I felt like if it had just broken free and let John Cho be a dramatic actor instead of had to be in front of that webcam, I I feel like it would have been even better. But, yeah, I think... I think it does well. I think if you take away the narrative conceit, though, the story itself, I wouldn't want to watch the normal version of that story, right? Oh, like, oh, the yeah, twists yeah. and turns would not work the same way. Yeah, um, no, that, that's, that's true. But I, I think that the, the, the realistic aspect of the way the information is being portrayed, you, and also the performance of John Cho, like, he's so great in this role as this grieving father yeah. that, like, you 100% buy that. Plus the emotional impact of that first, like, three minutes of the movie or whatever it oh, is. Oh, it's great. It's, it's like, like up, right? right? Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah, an yeah. amazing opening scene. And it's done so well. And it's like that intro to the film sets this, like, amazing tone and bar that, like, makes you just go, like, this is not just somebody fucking around yeah. making a film. Like, this is somebody who actually had an idea who could have pulled the plug at any point point. was like, no, we need to nail this beginning and then we can make the rest of the film. And it was just like, I just, I, I thought it was phenomenal. Yeah. And, and also that is one of those wonderfully like timely things. Cause watching it 10 years from now, no one would get the subtlety of like how the windows change over time and yeah. the websites they're using change over time. And it really does like, it, it conveys so much in a very canny way where when it opens, you're like, Oh Jesus Christ, is this movie going to be like eight bit colors the whole time like what the <laughs> what the fuck kind of and then you realize what they're doing and you're like oh this guy knows exactly what yeah. he's doing and that's the thing too is even though you know exactly what it's going to do you still are like yeah you fucking nailed that yeah. it's good <laughs> all right uh well speaking of good <laughs> carson patrick what is good enough to make your number nine slot canonically you know what i was thinking leading into one of these other movies is um a slight tangent but um the other day we were watching tv and the first men in black was on and i hadn't seen it in a long time and i think i first of all i strongly urge everyone to go out and rewatch men in black because not only does it still hold up but 
um, Vincent D'Onofrio's performance in that movie as the villain, as, you know, Edgar, or, you know, more, more, you know, like, <laughs> it's, it's next level, man, it is a, it's, like, as a kid, when you watch Men in Black, you're like, oh yeah, like, he's a bad guy, like, evil, yeah, alright, yeah, it makes sense, you know, he's a, literally a cockroach disguised as a human, like, I, yeah, I buy that, um, cool, but then as an adult, you're just like, oh my god, like, this is a fucking choice, man. Like, he was just, like, taking it to the next level in terms of being just, like, so wacky, like, gonzo out there performance. Like, it is, it was, like, it became a whole new movie because I was like, oh my gosh, like, I never, like I said, as a kid, you never saw it that way. Um, and then it really made me think like, you know, you know, I kind of miss like a lot there, there was a lot of that in the nineties, I feel like. And I kind of miss that, like that kind of go for broke acting in like big studio movies, uh, these days, you know, you see, I feel like you see very little of it. Um, but I feel like we got the closest we got to that, uh, was in Venom with Tom Hardy, uh, killing it, it I, you know, God bless Tom Hardy, he's doing, like, a Jim Carrey, uh, style, like, take on Venom, like, it's, it's a, it's never not entertaining, I, I mean, I just couldn't get enough of it, but I think maybe that's probably the closest we've come to really kind of delivering, uh, just a go-for-broke, insane performance, uh, in a big blockbuster like that, so yeah, Venom at number nine. I mean, let's Venom, be Venom, Venom, Venom. <laughs> let's be honest, Stephen. We there was no world in which we didn't think Venom was going to make his top ten list. Of course, right? yeah. <laughs> I just can't believe it's so low. It, it, it isn't really a numbered list, but <laughs> true, true, true. Uh, I mean, there, there, there's a top three and then twenty five other ones. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I think that I had a lot of fun with Venom. Um, but I think it was like Venom was two movies for, for me. Mm-hmm. It was like the movie where that, that Carson is praising right now where Tom Hardy is just fucking going crazy and like silly things are happening. And then there was whatever the hell the story was. And I think that like much like uh, – A parasite that you Yeah, much ingest. like a parasite. Um, basically, my symbiote loved Venom. Um, I think the host body – saw rejected the rest it. of the film <laughs> rejected it and uh is just happy dying and letting the the, the symbiote go away um but i mean yeah I, I think that we were both uh willing to uh get prepared for seeing whatever the next follow-up is it made enough money that they yeah. can make a sequel um I, I think that we would happily watch a sequel um obviously well i can't say obviously i don't know venom might have made your list <laughs> Is a film that deals with grief, um, That's a romance, uh, a super emo Michelle main Williams. Character. Michelle Williams. <laughs> I mean, it definitely has all of the pieces. Yeah, all of the salient pieces. I, no, <laughs> Venom did not make my list, but I believe I liked it more than you did. I, I think in our review that was clear that I also see those two pieces. But for me, the the insane uh, uh, Hardy as the mask wackiness of it. Like, to me, the ratio was, like, 90% to 10%. Like, I felt like regular narrative was so not what this movie was about. I was willing to forgive it that. And I had <laughs> I had a fun, wild ride with it. I think this was my favorite zany, ridiculous movie of the year. Uh, I, I know other people might have other ones that they are going to throw in as well. Uh, but for me, this really... This was, like, the silly movie that I would watch and rewatch and, like, 
just enjoy how dumb fun <laughs> it is. So yeah, no love lost for Venom. Uh, all love lost for Venom. There's no love lost. <laughs> Venom is a lot of fun. <laughs> nice. Um, uh, well, yeah, that is the end of our number nines. Um, let's get on to our number eights. Stephen Miller, what was your number eight film of 2018? Okay, so for the last time in a row, this is going to be a film about grief, kind of. <laughs> uh, it's time to plug... It's pause. the Peanuts movie. Yeah. Good grief. So time to pause and say I wrote a super long essay about film and grief that you can find at sdavidmiller.com if you want to check it out. It's probably why it's been on my mind so much. Anyway, this film got quite a bit more critical attention than State Like Sleep, but still way less than I think it deserved. It's also about grief and the lanes people will go to numb themselves to it. Um, it also has a kick-ass soundtrack. It's about somebody mourning someone that they lost, and it conveys the feeling of a specific place in a way I'd never seen on screen before. Chris, can you guess what movie I'm talking about? Uh, I want to guess, but I'm embarrassed about getting it wrong. Is it a film that we reviewed very recently? Kind of recently. Like, chronologically or actual duration-wise? <laughs> uh, I'm talking, of course, about First Man. Okay. <laughs> and, like, okay, so First Man... <laughs> Your location is the moon? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I was being, I was being clever. You definitely tricked me. <laughs> but okay, look, I, I get why people, why not all critics are hot for this movie. It's like kind of chilly, you know, compared to Whiplash, which was a panic attack, and I love that movie, uh, or the kind of feel-good circle jerk of La La Land, which I, I liked fine, but I wasn't in love with. This one feels a little bit more like removed, right? It feels more yeah, formal yeah. and restrained, mainly because Ryan Gosling is a totally stoic character as Neil Armstrong. Like he doesn't give us much emotion to go on. But I think that criticism is, like, really, really missing the point of this movie. I think Armstrong might be a chilly character, but the movie itself is, like, so intimate, it's almost claustrophobic. Uh, it really conveys the feeling of, like, a human being tried to go to the moon. Let me tell you what it would be like to be a human in that situation. Yeah, because yeah. We, we've seen it dramatized in ways that kind of abstract it away as some grandly heroic thing. Yeah. I've never before seen it brought down to the human level. Um so I spent a while this year arguing with flat earthers on the internet. <laughs> I think we, we talked about <laughs> that a little the bit. Real reason why you put this on the list? <laughs> yeah, and, and so like they're ridiculous, and it, it was very frustrating. But the scenes shot in a cockpit in this movie are almost enough to convince me that they're right because it's absolutely insane that we went to the moon <laughs> when we went to I, the moon. <laughs> ironically enough, I don't know if you watched the special features on this film, but uh, they did one of those things where you have the screen, so mm -hmm. all the outside shots of the cockpit are actually projections of the outside world, and they have a system rigged up to, like, mm. they're shooting for real out those windows. It's not green screen. Nice. Um, but the world is, in fact, flat because it's projected onto a wall. <laughs> Hot damn. <laughs> um, but, yeah, it, this is a movie about how insane it is that we went to space, and not just logistically insane, like the engineering feat, the danger of it, the, the insanity of being inside... A thing with the technology of, like, a 1960 Volvo out in the atmosphere hoping you won't float away into oblivion because your knob doesn't work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're laughing at and hush. <laughs> but it's also, it's morally insane, uh, like the Gil Scott Heron song uh, that they play in the middle of this movie uh, about all the social issues that they should have been solving when they were instead trying to go to the moon. It's emotionally insane, like the families that it broke, the people who died in the pursuit of it. 
the people like Claire Foy's character who live on but have lost so much emotionally speaking from this journey it's completely absurd to go to the moon uh and i think this movie is about how it can still be beautiful to do an absurd thing how humanity is all about like picking a quest and sticking with it whether or not it makes sense just to triumph like just to do the damn thing this is gonna be the most pretentious (laughs) i get (laughs) in, in this best of um but in an essay called The Myth of Sisyphus that I love, uh, that I read, like, forever ago, uh, Camus is writing about absurdity and about the philosophy of, like, if life is absurd, why don't we all kill ourselves, right? Like, if there's no meaning, like, that's how it opens. It says, like, a philosopher should believe what he says, and if I'm telling you there's no meaning to life, I should kill myself. So why don't I kill myself? Who's got to spread the message? (laughs) Sure. Um, Did I get it? (laughs) No, so the conclusion that he gets to... Uh, it comes from an analogy with this character of Sisyphus from uh, Greek tradition, who was a character that was condemned to push a stone up a hill every day. Every night, the stone would fall back down. And he just repeatedly is going to push it up, knowing that it's going to fall at the end of the day, and he's never going to get anywhere. And the thing that he concludes is that we have to imagine Sisyphus like looking at the rock and pushing it and feeling happy that he gets to push it, feeling like, even though this doesn't mean anything, I fucking did it today, and that's all that matters. And... I, I, I think I, I think about that a lot actually in in life about like things that you do because they matter to you because you choose to like make them mean something, and I think like the moon landing is a thing that I don't know what it gave us like I don't know how it made humanity better that we went there I don't know what we learned exactly like what we did but I know that putting someone on that rock and like that moment when you land on that rock and the aspect ratio changes. And you're an IMAX and you're just out there on the stone. It matters because you've been pushing so hard to get there. And I think this movie just like conveys that feeling in a way that I, that I really, really liked. Yeah. I mean, it was, this was one of those films that had like an incredibly amazing experience in IMAX. I know some people were like, but it was just an IMAX at the end. But I was like, I, I really think that that transition in that moment really, it's also like, it's, it's a transition to IMAX and then, about a minute and a half of just silence, silence yeah. and seeing the surface of the moon and seeing like the no face of the mask of the people who are out there. And it's just, I, I think it did so many things and it was, it was one of the only experiential films of the year where you're not just like, it's not, it's not a brain shut off film. It's a film where you are, like experiencing the journey of the character from their point of view and it makes you feel what you're seeing instead of just think about what you're saying you know like Apollo 13 great film people praised it mm-hmm. you care about what's happened to the characters but you don't feel the cold you don't feel the intensity of those right. moments you just understand that it was crazy and this yeah, film you, you know that it's dangerous because americans are watching on their tv set at home and you feel what they're feeling from the newscaster you're not feeling like what it feels like to be there yeah 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 and i and i think that this film just does that in an amazing way so yeah. three cheers for uh absurdity <laughs> yeah yeah that too <laughs> um all right uh my number eight all right, so my number eight um, doesn't technically count as a coincidence, but a lot of the things that you attributed to First Man before you said it was First Man, I interpreted it as potentially being another film. 
um, which is the film that made my number eight on the list, and that is Thunder Road, oh. um, which is a film that is about a place. <laughs> Family features very specific music. Yep. It is about grieving oh, yeah. of somebody that you've lost and uh, really about the lengths that one person might go to deal with that grief. Um, so, so literally... We everything... really had a grief-filled year. <laughs> God damn. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, this is literally the newest episode in our feed. Um, so before this episode, if you go back to the last episode, you can hear me uh, gush about over this film. It is a film that I wasn't even going to see I saw the trailer and was like, not for me. <laughs> and then uh, Stephen said, uh, Stephen kept jokingly saying, you could always watch this on VOD for our marathon review list. And uh, I got to a point where I was like, you know what? I'm just going to watch this on VOD. And I watched it and I was fucking floored by this film. Like, mm-hmm. it, it's really incredible. It's an amazing performance, a complex performance, literally bouncing back and forth between every emotion in the course of one scene about a person dealing with grief who is not quite stable, but is incredibly sympathetic. You want him to succeed. You want the rest of the world to respond in the way that is not necessarily appropriate as they should, but appropriate for the way that will calm him down. And it's just, it was a film that once again, took me like, like first man took me on a journey with this character of feeling just the tragedy of what he's experiencing in his life. And just the the honest to God trying to just do good. (laughs) Like just to, to, act appropriately for mm-hmm. the people around him so that they don't think that he's not stable while he's just trying to hold it together as this world is falling apart. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it, it was it was a fantastic film. Uh, and I, I I really, really enjoyed it. Huge surprise for me. Yeah. And uh, more people should go I, rent I, it. I completely agree. I uh, So this is an honorable mention for me. Um, the only real reason I didn't slot it in as a number 10 type pick is because I felt pretty sure you were going to talk about it already. Because <laughs> um, th- this is that kind of like hidden gem that it might not be for everyone, but if it's for you, it's going to be really fucking for you. And I think Jim Cummings gives an amazing performance. Uh, I talked in our review already how the fact that a movie about Thunder Road, the song even existed, was enough for me already because I'm so fucking nostalgic <laughs> about that song. Um the soundtrack is great. Otherwise, we played some other things from it in our review. Um, yeah, I, I think it's just a really delicate, tiny film about grief. And I love these films that manage to on a, what I can only imagine is a micro budget, right? To tell like a really compelling story with just a few characters and say like, hey, we don't need all that flash, right? We can we can make a human story with whatever we have around us already. We can tell it in our home. And yeah. I think... Yeah, it, it's just a lovely movie. It actually thematically ties kind of well with the next movie I'm going to talk about, but we'll let, we'll let Carson weigh in first. But yeah, I totally recommend Thunder Road. I think it is a gem waiting on iTunes, and I hope more people find it and check it out. All right. Uh, Carson Patrick, what was your number eight? Uh, let's see. Uh, oh, geez. There's just too much good stuff to choose from. Oh, another movie. Here we go. This one was... <laughs> This one, talk about a good comedy that uh, didn't make you feel terrible afterwards, even though that was, I feel like that was all, that was that was the theme this year. I feel like that was where I was at. Uh, that's at least where I was at. Um, but the movie Crystal, which, um, <laughs> which has Nick Robinson in it, um, and it's, it's, man, what a fucking wacky movie. I loved it, man. It was... 
it was just a great like screwball rom-com. There's just all kinds of tones and and fun going on in this movie, but I'd say like it's a pretty great setup because it's like Nick Robinson plays a dude who it's pretty much like the opposite of Crank. Like Jason Statham, you know, had to keep his heart rate up and here Nick Robinson has to uh do everything to not stimulate his heart. Uh, you know, so he abstains from um drinking and drugs and uh falling in love because he doesn't want to pass out because he has this like rare heart condition or whatever. So of course, naturally he falls in love with Rosario Dawson and immediately passes out upon seeing her. And it has probably one of the strangest meat cutes, which is he pretends to be an alcoholic so he can um hang out or meet Rosario Dawson in an AA meeting. Um, <laughs> which, which leads to all sorts of shenanigans, um, including, um, uh, T.I., who's also in the movie, shows up as, uh, Rosario Dawson's, like, ex-lover and also, uh, ex-pimp because, oh yeah, she's also, like, an ex, like, escort in the movie. So there's just all kinds of great layers, hilarious, wacky layers to it. Um, but T.I., like, he completely steals this movie, man. Like, he's an underrated, I think, comedic actor. Like, you know, we've seen him do the comedy in, like, the Ant-Man movies, but here he just walks away with the whole movie. And, uh, yeah, and this movie was directed by William H. Macy, who's also in the movie. So there you go. All right, so there's the film Crystal. Um, I believe neither of us saw this film either. No, though, I, I'm sure it relates to your number one of the year, Love, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Steven, don't spoil it. Sorry. Um, uh, I mean, it's my number two. I mean, obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. happy anniversary is yeah. number one. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, I, I basically, as we were slotting in these things, I think this one made me laugh the most with Carson's description of being the opposite of Crank. Because Crank is a film that is ridiculous and has a lot of love on this podcast as a whole. Um, I don't know if you enjoy them as much as Carson as I do, and I do, I Steven. have honestly never seen the Crank movies. Oh, you, we gotta but isn't like... the opposite of Crank Canark? Is that crank backwards? I, I think so. <laughs> um, anyways. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I just thought it was very, very funny. I remember seeing this trailer somewhere, maybe on like the iTunes or Apple trailer page. Um, but yeah, I have not seen it and don't have a lot to talk about other than I thought it was a funny description of reverse crank. Because I have no idea. I was like, what the fuck is reverse crank? And then he described it and I was like, um, yeah, yeah, it's reverse sense. crank. Yeah. I mean, I'm totally on board with that. Reverse crank is heart disease. <laughs> Um, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. So we are on to number sevens now. Stephen Miller, what was your number seven film? So Narc may not dis- describe Crank backwards, but it could. <laughs> I'm going to get through this. It could describe the protagonist of this next film. Um, this is. <laughs> White Boy Rick? <laughs> <laughs> no. that, w- that would be more apt. Um, uh, so. This is a movie, um, I, I don't know if I want to try to make you guess it or not. Um, let's see, it is a period piece. Uh, it is a film that I saw quite a bit before you did. Um, it is a movie that the ending is really what 
sets the tone of the film, and without the ending, it would be a very different movie. Does it have three Ks in the middle of the yeah. title? <laughs> yeah. So I, I'm talking about Black Klansman, uh, Spike Lee's movie about a police infiltration of the Ku Klux Klan in the 70s in Colorado Springs. Um, this is a movie, we've talked about it at length already on the podcast. It, it's a movie that is ostensibly a celebration of one man's infiltration of the KKK. Um, I, I don't even remember the Ron Stallworth. Yeah, yeah. Ron, Ron Stallworth. Stallworth brothers. Yeah, so Ron, Ron Stallworth is the police officer who has managed to masquerade himself as a KKK member. Uh, the surprise being that he is a black man in the movie. Um, and he basically on the phone manages to infiltrate the KKK, convince them that he is one of them, that he agrees with their hateful rhetoric, and the goal is to oust them, basically figure out what violent things they are planning and stop it from happening. This is a movie that, like, for the bulk of its runtime, is a very fun, kind of silly period piece about, like, it's almost like a riff on those 70s cop shows. It's, like, kind of rosy and nostalgia-tinged, and it's, like, the villains are very cheesy in this movie. Like, the KKK are, they're menacing in what they represent, but the actual characters who play them are kind of bumbling idiots most of the time. Um, And it feels almost too good to be true. And then, I won't spoil the exact contents, but the ending really pulls the rug out from under you. And honestly, the ending is what makes the movie for me, because it does something that I have not had another movie do before, where it just, it leaves you in total silence. Like, an audience who is seeing this for the first time, they they don't know how to react after what Spike Lee does at the end of yeah. this movie. And I think the the message, it is telling is very potent i think it's a movie that makes you think it's a movie that demands a second watch after you're kind of informed by the end over what should i take at face value what should i take as satire what am i learning about that is like too good to be true um i think adam driver gives a great performance in here too kind of like an unsung wonderful (laughs) acting job of the year adam driver is great and everything yeah Um, but there's just a lot of layers here to the way the movie deals with race and society and then an ending that kind of casts a big question mark covered shadow all over it in a way that I just thought was very provocative in the best way. It reminded me a lot of Do the Right Thing by Spike Lee. It's not quite up there with that movie, but I, I think it definitely is a, a powerful thing that only a filmmaker like him could do, which is like, it isn't a practical joke, but it's a movie that like, is wound up to be one way just so you can it can pummel you over the head. And I think even if you know that, you still won't be ready for how it feels when it happens in the end. So yeah, th- this was one of the more visceral film-going experiences for me in the emotions that it left me with at the end. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it is a very interesting film. I think I had... Um... I had complicated feelings about how it handled the subject matter as far as the joking level that the film takes. Um, Many people did. I yeah, thought. yeah. And, and, and I think that, like, that ending do- – it, it is strong. Um, I went into that ending with some misguided uh, things due to some temporal uh, issues, um, mm-hmm. reading some articles about the production of the film that happened to have incorrect information. Um May may have potentially biased my reaction to the ending of the film, but I, I just I had some complicated feelings of it as a whole. I think it's a very interesting film. I think it brings up a lot of interesting ideas, um, especially uh, you know in addition to the obvious ones that the film is doing, but kind of how it juxtaposes the Adam Driver's character and his 
participation in this event and it, like there's a lot of things that it's doing that is very interesting um i appreciate that the film exists that ending does have a wallop to it um and it's amazing too like we've seen this footage that you see before mm-hmm. um but on the screen in that way following that stuff it just has a different context right. and a weight to it that um, you've recalibrated yourself so when it comes it feels different than it normally would yeah yeah and, and I, I, I appreciate the existence of the film um it didn't hit all the things that would make me celebrate to the level of putting on a list um but yeah it's an interesting so, film so you know how when we talked about green book i described green book as like the movie i would take my racist uncle to on thanksgiving yeah <laughs> um i i think this is Spike Lee is obviously aiming for higher than that, but I think this is a very didactic movie in the sense that this is a movie that, for most of it, you know, it's giving good themes all the way along. It isn't like it's just completely lying to you. It has lots of stuff about, like, the tension between the police and society, the way that uh, Ron Stallworth's character is struggling to figure out where he fits in. Yeah. Um, And I think it really is meant to kind of hold the hand of people who are uncertain how they feel about this or maybe hardened in their ways. And I think... For an audience like that, especially that kind of punch in the face at the end, I, I would be really interested to see what that happens. So I think yeah, Spike yeah. Lee does it better than Peter Farrelly. <laughs> <laughs> but they are both, I think, mostly aiming at a white audience that maybe needs to hear that lesson. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Um, so my number seven, very, very different subject matter. Um, but it also deals with a group of people who are doing some nefarious acts and trying to... Um, hurt people around the world. Um, it involves a person trying to infiltrate that group or organization. Um, and it uh, is a film that uh, is not the first in the series. Yeah, of I was going to jokingly say Robin Hood, but it's Mission Impossible Fallout. Right? It's Mission Impossible Fallout. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the Mission Impossible franchise over the life of this podcast has just upped the ante and gotten more and more incredible. And it's it's gotten to a, a level where it's like, how are they going to um, have a new bigger bad <laughs> that is trying to ruin things? They've been competing or having to compete against the uh, the James Bond franchise with very similar uh, plots, extremely similar. extremely like Hydra like organizations with many many heads being cut off many many whatevers i'm mixing metaphors now but you know what i mean um but it's a series that's had to compete with james bond which has historically been one of my favorite series not not one of my favorite but it's like the thing that like i always see whenever it's on i want to watch it when the next one's coming out i want to see what's going on mission impossible went from being like this one film that was really really interesting to this series that has been building and building and becoming more and more my favorite to where like i've said on the podcast before i want a mission impossible every single year mm-hmm. every year I, I want it to be the new star wars where just every year there's another one yeah. um and as they go bigger and, and bigger and the gadgets become more and more complex and they do more and more interesting things it's like how can you possibly come up with a more clever interesting uh stunt or gadget to give Ethan Hunt to be celebrated. And at some point, you're not going to be able to continue it and make it better. So what does this film do? It turns the film around and points the whole thing on who Ethan Hunt is as a man. And not just about him being this like Terminator who can get through everything, but being this fragile man who has emotional connections to things in the world. And 
puts him not through the ringer physically. I mean, it does put him through the ringer physically. Like he's <laughs> physically in real life. The oh, actor yeah. is hurt making this film. Um, but it it makes it a very very touching emotionally satisfying story of who this man is and what he has sacrificed to save the world seven times or whatever it is. I don't know what it actually is. It's like five films, right? Is this, this, possible? this is the sixth one. This is the sixth one? Okay. Um, but it, it's like this man is not a Terminator. He's a man and he has connections to the world and he's given up so much. And this film kind of is like, what if this one man knew your weak points, not as a physical human, but as an emotional being and what if he just twisted, mm. twisted a little bit? And I, th- I think this film does something that is, it, it, it just, it, I was not ready for the emotional level this film took and like making the character really feel like a person who cares about something besides just completing the mission. Um, and I think that was an amazing feat. Plus, he's fucking doing all these crazy stunts. He learned to fly a helicopter. This is just an amazing yeah, film. Ama- and an amazing movie to see in IMAX this year, especially. Yeah. 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 I mean, it, there's so many shots in this movie, like jumping out of a helicopter or jumping out of a plane. <laughs> I, I I don't even remember that. But yeah, yeah, jumping diving, out of a plane, flying yeah, a helicopter. <laughs> yeah, diving out of a plane, having a camera follow you in focus all the way down, yeah. flying a helicopter solo, and knowing it is real, like knowing like you yeah. are literally doing the it. Stunt work alone makes this an absolutely incredible movie. Yeah, like yeah. one of the biggest accomplishments of the year. Um, I recently, I'm pretty sure it's not going to make your list, so I can mention that I, I saw Free Solo this weekend in IMAX. And my main takeaway was, okay, this is an amazing stunt film. Like, the things that it is showing, the feat of human uh, behavior, like human accomplishment. Yeah. MI6 is still better. <laughs> Mission Impossible <laughs> Fallout is still showing something more impressive to me about humanity. Yeah, uh, yeah it, it's an amazing movie. Um, a super great ride. I struggled until the minute before this podcast to put this on my top 10, and I knew you were going to do it, so I decided <laughs> I could live without doing it because the word, the gospel of Ethan Hunt is going to get out of their way. <laughs> Not to be confused with the apostles, which Ethan Hunt is fighting. In this yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that is my number seven. Mm. Carson Patrick, what is your number seven? The movie Mute? which I really, really loved. Um, this was also on Netflix. This was Duncan Jones' uh, new movie that I feel like um, really kind of got swept under the rug. Like, people were really unkind to it, uh, which I thought was a bummer because this movie is, I would say it's just as strong, if not stronger in some aspects, uh, as Moon. Uh, purely because, um, just like on a ambitious level like this movie is just i mean thank god for netflix for bankrolling this movie um it was it was this was the project that duncan jones uh, it's a passion project that he wanted to do even before moon um and there's a lot of there's a couple of really cool tie-ins to moon actually in butte and um yeah, I just, I don't, I just, I really enjoyed the the world of it, and um, Paul Rudd is in it, and his character is so entertaining in this movie. I think it's one of my favorite Paul Rudd performances. Um, it just very unexpected, I guess, of what we're used to seeing Paul Rudd do, but uh, really, really awesome, awesome, and uh, 
so good that I decided to dress up as his character uh, for Halloween. Not that that matters or anyone cares, but uh, we all we all know you lurk that shit. Come on. Lurk that shit indeed. Um, mm. So mute. Um, it, I mean, I, I think it, it's it's fun to guess what is going to be on Carson's top 10 list. And I think that mute is on brand because last year he had Bright, mm-hmm. which is another Netflix film, which uh, was panned by a lot of people. A lot of people just fucking hated Bright. Yeah. And Carson Carson loved Bright, right? Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, and He's I, on I, the one-syllable Netflix frame. <laughs> but, but I think that, that Mute is a film that, when I heard it was a thing that was coming, I got excited for it, because I, I love Duncan Jones. Sure, of course. And I think I, I passed on Mute specifically because I had heard so many bad things about it. And it, what really made me sad is that, like, being somebody who loves Duncan Jones, like... Having two kind of what feels in my head like two huge missteps, uh, World of Warcraft, which I did see, or not World of Warcraft, it was just called Warcraft. Um, but but seeing the Warcraft film and just being like, oh man, like, mm, I want Duncan Jones to make amazing things, and then he follows it up with Mute, and I'm just like, fuck, I just mm. want, I want you to make amazing things, and I want you to keep getting amazing things to do, and it's just every time there's a misstep, it makes me very very sad. Um, but Mute. Maybe I should give it a chance. I've, I've been I've been on a little sci-fi kick on Netflix, trying to watch a bunch of sci-fi things. Um, so I'm willing to check it out. I just finally I know I'm late to the party, but just started Altered Carbon. Mm. Maybe when that's done, I'll take a watch of Mute. See how it goes. Yeah, I, I would watch this. So I was one of the people who didn't even know it existed. I don't remember hearing. I, I maybe was it like February. Like, early this year? I don't, honestly, I kind of remember early this year hearing about Duncan Jones and hearing, like, a little bit of an excitement and then it getting tempered with critical hatred. So maybe that was it. Um, (laughs) Yep, it was February 23rd. Okay, yeah. Uh, So it it was, like, not really on my radar. And now that I've got... I was telling you I've got my couch set up. I'm way more primed to watch Netflix movies at night that I don't care about Why would you be primed to watch Netflix things? I got Amazon Prime. a video streaming Yeah, I know. I'm uh, I'm Hulued up to watch Netflix things, um, and yeah, I, I think I would cue it in. I'm I'm intrigued enough. Like there have definitely been things that critics have not loved that I've been into. I feel like a Duncan Jones movie is worth a try. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Cool. Uh, well, Stephen Miller, you know what else is worth a try? What? <laughs> Whatever your number six film is. Uh, speaking of things critics have not loved, I'm going to give a movie that canonically critics loved so much they gave the palm door at can too. <laughs> nice. Yeah. Uh, so for the most part on this list, I tried to keep out uh, festival things that I didn't get to revisit just because, you know, it's been a long time. You're kind of on a high when you're watching things. It's hard to really know how you feel. Um, but Shoplifters, I was not hesitant at all, uh, even though I have not caught up with this since May when I first saw it. Um, uh, it's a Japanese film by Hirokazu Korida. Uh, it's a family drama about kind of a makeshift family on the outskirts of Tokyo that are learning to get by, even though nobody, there's not a lot of money to go around. There's not a lot of typical comforts, uh, but they have each other. And it's kind of a film about how we make ad hoc families wherever we go. How do we define the boundary of a family? Who is in it? Who is not in it? Um, how much family and bonds can kind of be a choice that we make where we choose to protect each other, choose to love each other. We talked about this movie so recently, I don't really have anything more to say about it. Um, yeah. I think this is a, 
a very good heartfelt Steven movie that gets upped into a great movie by a third act that I didn't see coming. You were in a mindset where you saw it coming a mile out. (laughs) Um, I had been so lulled by the searing family drama, I had kind of forgotten any complicating factors around it. And I just think it, it, it's a very, it's an interesting movie that kind of, it, it pulls your heartstrings, and then at the end, it doesn't sever them, but it does something to them. Like, it, it does something that you're not ready for, and I just feel like it it leaves a good emotional imprint on you. Um, I've only seen this and his movie called Still Standing, uh, but apparently there is a whole slew of later uh, films by him that I should check out, and apparently they all are like this, where they're weepy family dramas. So I got my couch worked out for me for the next couple weeks I think. <laughs> do you have your tissues though that's the question i do yeah nice um yeah i mean we as you said we've reviewed this recently um or better put we have released an episode recently <laughs> with a review of this film yeah um, I, I listen when you release them so i feel like we reviewed it recently <laughs> yeah yeah um but yeah it, it was a film that i appreciated um i didn't love it as much as you did or the critics did. Um, but it was definitely a film that was very interesting. Um, I was too caught up in like the implications of this as if it were a real story. Like I was, I was just so dumbfounded by like what was happening. Um, just character choices and things in this, in this universe that like, I was a little distracted from a very, very heartfelt, very, very interesting story about what it means to be a family. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I still support, all the love for this film it is a great film, um, but it's not making my list, sadly. All right, so my number six film, I think, if I'm not mistaken, maybe our first overlap film, mm-hmm. um, at least based on a joke you made earlier in the episode. <laughs> um, uh, my uh, my number six film is... Eighth a, grade. Is a... <laughs> Moo! <laughs> it is the film Eighth Grade. Um, which is about how old Steven is. Um, <laughs> Named for the year Chris peaked. So yes, Steven is correct. Uh, my number six film is Eighth Grade. Uh, it is a film that we saw at SF Film Festival. Um, it is a very, very touching story about a young 13-year-old girl um, who is finishing up the eighth grade and about ready to move into junior high school yeah um <laughs> i don't know how school works in the united states um but it's just really just a, this this very touching exp- uh, experiential film about this girl and what it's like to be in her own body um to be present in the world that she has to be in which is this uh junior high school and just kind of her fears and hopes and dreams about what life is going to be like when she moves to high school and it's really just this amazing film that I didn't think was possible that like this like comedian guy could write this story that felt so real and honest about this young 13 year old girl. And it was just, it was, it's an incredible film that um, is really, really, it's, 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 it's nice. It's charming. It's, I, it still pains me that my three sisters who are all 12 plus years younger than have me they not seen have not seen this film oh yet. Oh my God. Every time I see them, which is like once or twice a year now, I'm, I mean, it's only been, it came out this year. So anyways, every time I talk to them, I text them after we saw the film, I saw them at Christmas. I asked them, saw them 
sometime after we saw the film, uh, I said, have you seen this film yet? And they always say no. I don't know why. It's just it's it's a film that I think everybody should see, and I, I think even as a thirty five year old male, mm-hmm. I can still feel this experience as this young thirteen year old girl, and it just it does something that's really really impressive. Yeah. I had minor nitpicks about the film back when we saw it, um, but it's just it's it's a really amazing film, and I'm so happy to have seen it this year. Now, do you remember when we watched the Q and A for Skate Kitchen? How there was this feeling that like I did not see the film. Skate oh, not Kitchen. not Skate Kitchen. Sorry, uh, mid nineties. <laughs> mid nineties, yeah. Um, how people were asking the cast members things that they were not old enough at the time to step outside of and really examine. Yeah, yeah. Um, I wonder if your sisters would feel that way, like at least the younger ones. I wonder if we relate, even though it rings as so authentic, yeah, uh, yeah. this movie, and uh, spoilers, I'm going to talk about this later, so I'm not going <laughs> to blow too much here. Um, even though it rings so authentic, I wonder if it is authentic in a way that older people looking back have a perspective that makes that authenticity powerful in a way where people closer to that age just see it as like, yeah, that's accurate. Yeah, like, yeah. like, I wonder if it means more to us than it would to people who are closer to that actual life. Yeah, I mean, that that, that is definitely possible. Um, yeah, I mean... Because I watch it as, like, as her, but also as her dad, right? Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. We both see it as, like, her not knowing how great she is and how much her life is going to change. And that perspective, I think, is just... Like, like I think that is why you have a male 30-something director who made it, right? Is yeah. It kind of, like, straddles the line between both worlds. And I think it's a lovely movie, and we are going to talk about it more later. <laughs> Sounds good. Um, the real question is, is Carson going to talk about it now? I don't think he is. Carson, what are you going to talk about? What is your number six film? Destination Wedding. This is the movie that reunited uh, Keanu Reeves and Winona Ryder. And um, it's basically like a Richard Linklater, uh, like if Jesse and Celine were just really terrible, unlikable characters and they went to their friend's wedding uh, and just bonded over their uh, disdain for weddings and just life in general and uh yeah it's a lot of fun to watch um i think it's a it's a testament to the charisma and the chemistry between keanu and winona because they really make you uh they really make uh the unlikable likable like they they keep you invested in uh these characters uh yeah destination wedding um Probably, again, a film that neither of us saw. I never even heard of it, but I'm intrigued by Keanu and Winona together. I definitely saw the poster for this film, <laughs> but that is as much as I have to say about it. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right. Um, not not, to, not to, to downplay not at uh, all. The, the it making the list, but yeah, it, it, it's a film that we have nothing, uh, no, no knowledge of. Um, but yeah, that is Carson's number six. Um... Yeah, so we are now at the halfway point. Uh, I was going to acknowledge that we had not yet had any overlap in our list. That's still true by technicality, (laughs) but now with my all-seeing eye into the future, I know that it isn't true totally. But I... It almost makes me want to amend my guess from three to two, but we will see. Um, You have more information than I do probably (laughs) at at this point. I know at least one movie I said that I'm almost certain is going to be on your list later, but we'll find out. Technically, yes, I have more knowledge than you, but technically you also have just as much more knowledge than 
me. Sure. That, yeah. That's, that's yeah, a that's sentence. True. Yeah, that's a good sentence. But, um, but I, I think I know what you're hinting at. Yep. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, I think it's going to be an interesting year. Uh, but I am now finally going to go a little bit lighter than before. Mm. We're done with grief for a little while. We're moving on. <laughs> Upbeat is the wrong word, but I think the tone of this movie is much more natural. Um, so to start Tribeca this year, uh, we watched a screening of Tolly. Um, after the screening, Tamara Jenkins was interviewing uh, Jason Reitman about his process, about how much of his own life informed that movie, um, a- about how parenthood changed his view on the world and vice versa. He casually mentioned that they seem to be writing about the same things at the same time. This is not me putting Tolly at my number five. Uh, this is about her movie, Private Life, the movie that he was referencing at the time. Uh, so I think I'm starting a tradition. A tradition. <laughs> a tradition. <laughs> is it a prediction of a tradition? Yep. Uh, I'm starting a tradition where every year I put a a certain kind of Netflix movie that is based in New York that's made by like a lighthearted auteur that is doing something interesting about families that should be pretentious but don't come off that way because the actors are so damn good. And um, last year it was Meyerowitz Yeah, stories. last year it was the Meyerowitz stories. Uh, this year it is Private Life by Tamara Jenkins. Private Life is like the perfect Stephen movie, that kind of wistful movie. Like, like Landline, right? there's something about New York movies, right, where like they just feel you, you cozy into them right away. Like You just feel like this is the vibe. I am ready to watch two hours of these characters interacting. Um, it is a movie that I said it was lighthearted, but the topic is not. The topic is a couple who are trying to conceive. They've been trying for a very long time. Uh, Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti are a married couple. And after expending every other option, they attempt IVF. And they have a kind of hit or miss period of time where they are spending so much money trying to get pregnant and nothing seems to be working out. And... I don't know how much to reveal about this movie without giving away what happens in it. But basically, they, they go through a bunch of different attempts. They are both people who were kind of formerly, quote, cool. They were artistic in their youth. They thought they had all the time in the world to get pregnant. And now that they really want to, it feels like the world has kind of passed them by. They reach out to all their friends and family. Uh, so uh, his brother and sister-in-law are John Carroll Lynch and Molly Shannon, um, they're kind of more wealthy couple that he has to borrow money from frequently so they can pay for these. IVF is fucking expensive, if you oh, didn't yeah. know. That's a, that's a lot of money. Um, there are also some characters in this that I won't reveal. One played by Kaylee Carter, who I think is a newcomer, who might be a person who can carry the egg, and they start eyeing her in a way that is... It's a strange thing to bring up, right? There's a lot of strange social issues that come up here in terms of how do people approach a subject so personal and so complicated. And I think this movie, like Tolly, is very unflinching in its view of the messy, ugly, uncomfortable aspects of conception and parenthood. But it is also very funny, not only darkly funny, but lighthearted in a way and wistful. It talks about the toll it it exerts on a relationship. And so... You might remember this great scene in Before Midnight where Julie Delpy is in an argument with Ethan Hawke and for like 20 minutes she's topless during it and it's kind of like a, quote, brave performance, you know. Catherine Hahn one-ups that in an amazing, hilarious way in this movie. Um, I love this movie. I watched it a rainy day forever ago and I remember it so well. I feel like I have lived the life of these characters and I just think it's a, it's a great look into a very specific aspect of life the toll that it takes on their relationship. I, I just think it's wonderful. Catherine Hahn and Paul Giamatti in everything forever. The end. 
Yeah, this is a film that is still on my list of things to watch. Um, from everything I've heard about it from Stephen and from other podcasts that I've listened to talking about it, it seems like it's going to be a film that I'm very much enjoyed. Um, I have unfortunately listened to some spoiler conversations about it because mm-hmm. there are times when you stop a podcast uh, to not go into spoilers, but then you listen to other episodes from a podcast and you're washing dishes and then spoilers start, but your hands are all wet. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing you can do. We've all been there. And you just say, fuck it. I'm going to listen to spoilers for this conversation. Um, but it's it's still a film that I'm excited to listen to. And uh, yeah. <laughs> yep. It's a good one. On Netflix, uh, quite a few movies we talked about actually are streaming on some platform already. So that is one thing about 2018. You can definitely access a lot of these movies already. All right. So on to my number five. Um, my number five film. The question is, are we going to get into more overlap territory or mm-hmm. not? Uh, my little spying eye has determined that we are not because I happen to have it on good authority that Stephen has not seen this film yet. <gasps> oh, shit. And that is the film Hereditary. Um, Hereditary is a film that, well, I might not care too much for the ending ending of this film. The fucking ride of this film is incredible. I think this is a fantastic film that builds dread and wonder and just fear for what is about to happen. I've heard wonder before. Um, It's... (laughs) Thanks, Stephen. Um, But it's just just a film that, like... Okay, here's the thing, right? Carson likes to tease us for seeing films at the Alamo Drafthouse. This is an audio podcast, so people don't know. But I like to eat. Mm Mm-hmm. This is the first time I've been in an Alamo Drafthouse film where at the end of the film, my food was still there and the guy had to ask me if I wanted a box because I could and not... Chris cut his head off. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Stephen, the irony of your statement. <laughs> um, I know. <laughs> um, but no, I, I literally had not eaten my food. Because I was too couldn't move, didn't want to make a sound. There is a moment in this film in the center where I put my hand over my mouth and I held it there for about ten, what felt like ten minutes before I was like, "Oh, I can at least try to nibble one fry now." Um, <laughs> it is a film that is incredible, and I, I think that some of the performance in this. There is a scene around a dinner table um, of just a family arguing and screaming things at each other. That is like the most incredible emotional moment I've one one of the most incredible emotional moments that I've seen this year. And I think that just this is a film that just does so many things right that even though the ending is weird and crazy and like as I'm leaving the theater and I hear people talk about knowledge that they gleaned from outside of this film, I was like, "All right, okay, this is important to somebody. I didn't care." Like the, just the experience of watching this film and the journey of where it's going and how emotional this film is and how much it talks about the dynamics between families and uh, mental illness and things about growing up supporting people that you love or want to love or feel the need to love but maybe can't love because of the issue. Like, this film is incredible. And maybe it's not the best horror film that's ever been invented, uh, but it's just – it's so – like it just it's just so well made mm-hmm. and tony Collette deserves some sort of award for that scene alone in this film <laughs> um and i i just it, it's so much of this film i love and when i walked away it sat with me and 
it was just so impressive the achievement of what happened in this film um that it just it it's i knew that it was gonna arrive on my list somewhere and as i was sitting there making the list i was like you know what this is a perfect number five slot <laughs> and it still pains me that steven has not seen this film yet i have not i am a famous wimp <laughs> I, i'm a famous person who is terrified of horror on this podcast i rented this movie when i left for <laughs> india like a month ago now jesus that was a long time um, I rented this along with like six other things. I watched all five of the other ones. <laughs> <laughs> I kept putting off watching Hereditary. I believed I would most likely be able to watch it on an airplane or in the middle of the afternoon, right? Like some situation where I will not be scared, Yeah. where maybe the images won't burn in my brain. But everyone, even people who wanted me to see it, told me images will burn in your brain. <laughs> and I don't want that. <laughs> I don't want that in my life. Um, I, I don't know. I think... This is one thing I listened to a few top 10 lists like in mid-December when people started doing it and Hereditary was not making as many as I thought it would. So I was like, okay, I can morally <laughs> not watch this movie <laughs> and still record a top 10 list. I promise I will watch it. I will watch this movie. I'm not going to like it. Chris going to have to do cuddle time afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> and Joanna's just going to have to deal with it. Yeah, she'll watch. <laughs> I, I will see it, but no, I don't know. There's just something – I know certain images can, like, last with me for months, and yeah. I, I am terrified of what this movie could do to my brain. <laughs> I, I Without saying too much, I will say the thing that isn't the actual image will last with you more than the image itself will. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Thank you, Confucius. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we have a commitment for Steven mm-hmm. on watching Heredity. I, I promise by March I will have seen Hereditary. That's a strangely specific date, especially considering, like, nothing. Well, I figure in. you're going to edit this, like, end of February. <laughs> Touche, Steven. Touche. Um, it's actually live streaming to the internet right now. Oh, shit. So we have a commitment from Steven to watch Hereditary. Carson Patrick. You have committed to your list, canonically, which film? The movie Arizona came in. (laughs) This movie, I think, would definitely... If I had to do an official top five, this one would be in the top five for sure because it is is fucked up and it is just so dark and funny. Um, But it's, it's, it's pretty... Like, it's not something I'd seen before, for sure. Um... It's basically, it's, I guess you, they would classify it as a comedy, but it's basically a horror movie, um, that's set in 2009 during the housing crisis in like an abandoned, um, subdivision in Arizona, obviously. Uh, and Danny McBride is the lead and he plays a guy who loses his house and he decides to get revenge on his realtor played by Rosemary DeWitt. And, um... It plays exactly like a horror movie down to, like, all the tropes of, you know, Danny McBride being the unstoppable killer and Rosemary DeWitt being the final girl. Um, I mean, you could very easily switch Danny McBride out for Jason Voorhees or Michael Myers or anything like that, and it would play just the same. Um, But, man, it's it's so funny. Like, it's just... I appreciate it. It's It's just commitment to bleakness um and extreme nihilism but uh that's you know one of the reasons why i enjoyed it a lot 
so yeah, I and I, you know, it, I feel like it didn't get a lot of love, but uh, man, I really, really enjoyed that movie. All right, so that is the film Arizona. Um, I remember the poster for this distinctly, um, probably because I saw it <laughs> posted to Sarah's Facebook feed or something like that, most likely. Um, but I have not seen this film. Mm-hmm. I, I have not either. Uh, when he said the name, I imagine a Danny McBride reboot of Raising Arizona, which I would watch the hell out of. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'm afraid I don't know anything about Arizona. Cool. Uh, all right. Well, I think, if I'm not mistaken... That means it's time to move on to our number fours. Mm. All right. So you mentioned with your uh, listing of searching at number eight, I believe. Yep. Um, that it elevated in your mind by watching it silently on airplane screens while you were traveling. <laughs> uh, and I have a movie that is like that, too. Based on my airplane travels, can I randomly guess? It's probably not your answer. No, no. Go for it. If I, if I were to pick the other film that I watched at least ten times while traveling on airplanes, that would be the film Crazy Rich Asians. That, that is not correct. But that is a good <laughs> guess. Um, no, the film I saw is one that I am I'm proving that podcasts are not a canonical ranking of anything because when I reviewed this, I specifically said I did not like it as much as uh, Black Klansman, uh, and this is a movie called Blind Spotting, and I have since changed my mind dramatically. I so two things happened. I watched this on a plane a few months ago uh, when I realized it had come out and I really wanted to revisit it. And over my last month of travel, I've seen it on screens, including on Joanna's screen right next to me. And without, <laughs> without hearing it, just catching it in my periphery, I would feel stress. I would feel intensity. I would know exactly what was happening. And I would have this feeling of like, oh my God, she's about to watch this part. How is she going to react to this? Yeah, yeah. And blind spotting is just... So there have been a bunch of films this year that were either the, quote, Oakland films, uh, you know, Black Panther, Sorry to Bother You, Blind Spotting, all fit in that category where they're at least in part about Oakland and the way Oakland is changing and what it represents to people, or films about race in America, uh, particularly from the black experience. Like Black Klansman is another one that came out in this kind of string of summer movies that were all hammering different points home on this theme. Um, and I feel like at the time when I first saw it, I wasn't, I liked it a lot, but it felt very personal and almost like whimsical. Like the tone of it was very, sometimes it was very upbeat. Sometimes it was very, very, very dark. And I didn't know exactly how to get a handle on it. And now the longer I sit with it, the more personal it feels to Oakland as a whole and the kind of contradictions that someone might feel growing up in Oakland and watching it change over the years. I think there's a lot of love for the local character that David's, uh, David Diggs feels in this movie. Um, but then there's a feeling of the way it's changing and how some of those changes might be beneficial to him personally. Some of them might be losing something very deep. I think this is a movie that plays really, really well with the highs and lows, with the way that you can love a place and feel mixed about the place and be terrified at the same time. Uh, I think it dives into certain themes um, that other movies like Black Klansman have explored, like uh, the relationship with the police and the people, but in a much more direct, personal way. I think the use of music in this movie is very, very, very good. Um, yeah. The reason I watched it again on a plane was because I wanted to watch the spoken word pieces in particular. And there was a moment when I was trying to transcribe the rap that he does at the end of this movie. And watching that four times or five times in a row, that is an intense scene. And yeah. that does not wear off when you know that it's coming. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. 
I, I think it's just really a very, very, very powerful movie. It's a movie that I think is very personal and specific. It does not feel like any other movie this year. Uh, I told you before how I saw uh, Ike Barinholtz's The Oath <laughs> the other night. Yeah. Uh, the movie about a person feeling the weight of anger in the current political climate and turning it into in, – in Ike Barinholtz's movie, it is an act of violence. It's like the world is on fire and Thanksgiving dinner becomes insane all of a sudden because you just have to get out this anger that you're feeling. I think Blind Spotting does that and like eight more things so much – better yeah and the feeling of hopelessness and the feeling of anger and the like the feeling of like why does no one else see this thing that is obsessing me right now um i i just think it's a really brilliant film and i think if anything is going to really be like the picture of what 2018 was like i think blind spotting is it of that grappling with highs and lows lights and darks and this kind of like very 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 weird feeling of I hate the moment I'm in and I love the moment I'm in and I don't know who to be anymore. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that, that is a movie that just really grew in my estimation the longer I sat with it. Yeah. Um, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I wholeheartedly agree so much that my number four film is blind spot. Hell yeah. High five. <laughs> <laughs> oh, also what you just heard was Steven and I awkwardly trying to high five across two boom mics <laughs> <laughs> across the table. Um, but yeah, I, I think Blind Spotting is a fucking phenomenal film. Mm-hmm. Um, this is a film that, like some of the other films I mentioned, fucking came out of nowhere. This is a film that literally the first time I'd ever heard the title Blind Spotting was from Movie Pass's email, like pushing the film. And I was like, what is this film? And I, I, it was not on my radar. I had not seen a trailer. I went in and saw this film, and it is, it is phenomenal. I mean, this is a film that. Um, th- there are several films that you mentioned that sort of deal with the black experience and kind of what it's like um, to grow grow up black. Um, and this is a film that doesn't just try to tell you that story through a heightened reality or through a comedic way mm-hmm. or to try to juxtapose it to something else. This is a film that makes you feel that in a way that I haven't seen on film before. This is a film that doesn't just make me think about something. It makes me feel the dread moment to moment. This is a story this is a story about two friends who grew up in the same conditions, the same neighborhood, best friends their whole life. The only difference between the two of them is that one is white and one is black. And this film follows their day to day lives and sort of how even though 99.99999% of their life experience is identical, they are almost the exact same person, mm-hmm. but one has the benefit of being white and the other doesn't. And it's, it tackles that in a way that I have not seen on film till seeing this film. And in a way that like every single scene, you're constantly in dread about what's happening every time a car drives by you're worried about what's going on as he tries to protect his friend. You're worried about how his attempts to try to protect the friend will play against him. The relationships he has with his girlfriend and like yeah. the, 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 just the, the changing environment. Like this film does so many things so well and in such a powerful way that it was like, I walked to this film just being like that. I did not expect that. <laughs> like yeah. this is a film that came Literally, I like. I might as well just walked in. I was completely no, blind. Yeah, no, 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 no pun intended. Like completely blind, walking into this film, and just like I, I was like, wow, that was that was an amazing film. And I think it was, 
it was something that just I was from the moment I saw it, I was glad that I had seen it. And when I saw other films dealing with the same subject matter this year, it, it, it they all felt a little less just because they all chose a sort of like um they tried to backdoor their way into talking about the subject matter. Mm-hmm. Um like let me give you a heightened reality version of this so that you can think about it on your own. This is a film that just yeah. like really it there's no nothing you can do when watching this film other than feel the experience of this film. And I think that right. it, it's very direct. It isn't trying to be clever about it at all. It's yeah. trying to be like, here is how I feel. How would you feel? Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and the film complicates it as much as it can. And it wants to tell you a, like a, a very interesting story from many, many points of view and make you deal with all of it. And it just, it's such an amazing film that needs to be seen by more people and should be celebrated. So yeah. it's, I, I totally agree. I, I think a few things that elevate it, uh, so one is so you mentioned the this is not just the story of Davi Diggs's character it's Davi Diggs growing up with Rafael Casal his friend who is also born and raised in Oakland very similar in behavior uh, yeah. you know even in his language until rather late in the movie when there's a big conversation about yeah, it yeah which is fucking amazing it's so good it, that scene it, is so really really and, amazing and I think for a movie to veer into that to not only be about the black experience but to be about like an honest look at the way that a white character in the same conditions would coexist in that space. And it isn't pandering to it. It isn't being like super didactic. It's being very real and very genuine. Yeah. That is, that's just something I'd never seen before. Um, I also think, so the spoken word pieces are really, really, really heightened and intense, but there are other moments that just watching it from like my periphery when someone else on the plane was watching it. Like there's a moment when after that conversation, Davi Diggs's character is walking home and he has something in his pocket and a car drives by. Yeah. I almost had a panic attack on the plane watching that, even though I know how, like I know everything about this movie, but yeah, I still yeah. like you feel it so well. And I just think it, it's a movie that lives in the contradiction, like, amazingly well and it's just such a personal piece i know i know the the director carlos lopez estrada doesn't usually get a lot of recognition because it feels so personal to david diggs and rafa cazell like it's clearly a movie they've been trying to make for a long time but it yeah i I love how specific it is i feel like if any movie is going to be a time capsule this is it because it's just like so many perspectives crammed into one movie yeah yeah all right, uh, Carson Patrick, what is your number four film? The movie Flower, uh, which is Max Winkler's follow-up to Ceremony. And um, this movie has a Zoe Dutch in it and Katherine Hahn and Tim Heidecker. Um, and it's, a, it's one of the darkest comedies that I've seen in a long time. And um, the basic premise, I guess you could say, is that uh, Zoe Dutch and her friends team up with her, uh, they team up to take down, uh, this teacher that, uh, her stepbrother or that sexually molested her stepbrother. They all team up to try and get revenge and take him down. And Adam Scott plays the teacher. And, um, it's very dark. It's very funny though. And it's, it's weirdly got just a lot of heart and, it's a very twisted, uh, but very uh, heart-filled coming-of-age movie. 
Um, all right. So that was Carson's number four film, Flower. That brings us we're – now we're into the top three. This is our bronze film for the year. Mm-hmm. Stephen Miller, what is your number three? Okay. No more build up from here on out. <laughs> I'm just going to cut to the chase. My number three is Widows, and Widows is fucking awesome. Um, I loved this movie. Uh, this is one of the few movies that when I left the theater, I was just on a complete high. I was pumped. I felt like I have just seen a real movie made by a director at the peak of his powers who knows exactly what he wants to convey. He had me in the palm of his hand. He can do whatever the hell he wants because I am completely on board. Um, my main comp for this movie when we talked about it, I believe, was The Departed by Scorsese because that is a movie that on the one hand is a very much like a typical adult action film, right? Like it's going to be a crime saga. There's going to be twists and turns. There's going to be violence. There's going to be hammy performances. But then it is made by an auteur who is so damn good that the movie becomes elevated above that genre into just being an amazing movie in its own right. Um, I, I think Widows is exactly that. Um, so I've talked to people who said that Steve McQueen felt like he was pulling back a little bit. He kind of felt too restrained, too moderate. The movie was too slow going or it didn't know what it wanted to be. Like it wasn't fully a heist movie, wasn't fully an action movie, wasn't fully a social drama. I hear all that. Like I hear that conversation. I just, I don't feel it. I, I don't care. I thought this was such a visceral, engaging movie from start to finish. Um, I love the cast. Like, Viola Davis is incredible. Daniel Kaluuya is the best performance I think I've seen him in so far. He's such a menacing villain. Yeah. So chilly. Um, Brian Tyree Henry is right behind him as his more stoic, level-headed boss who is, like, more terrifying by virtue of how in control he is of the situation. Elizabeth Debicki, I mentioned earlier in the tale, she's awesome here, too, as a member of her crew. Uh, Cynthia Erivo. I haven't talked about Bad Times at the El Royale yet, but that is a movie that she was great in. Yet? <laughs> As an honorable mention. Okay. All right, I'll, I'll reveal that. Okay. Um, I, wanted to dangle, I wanted to dangle that for you a little bit. Um, she is so great here. Uh, Colin Farrell as the politician who is like seedy, but not as seedy as he could be, who's trying to navigate these different worlds. I feel like I haven't even mentioned Liam Neeson yet. Like, that's how fucking insane this movie is, is that, like, I can go through so many people. The, the cast is studded. Everyone is doing their part. Everyone is playing their role incredibly well. This movie does by accident what so many movies have tried to do on purpose. It talks about politics and society. It talks about relationships. It talks about... The thing Steve McQueen just, like, seems to reveal on the sidelines of his main goal are so much more powerful than what many people have tried to do in their films on a whole. I just feel like he's operating on another wavelength. I love this movie. I was riveted from start to finish. I can't wait to watch it again. Widows, rad-ass movie. (laughs) Should be a more top-down list. End of story. Widows is a very good film. Mm. Widows is also a film that commits Christopher Schnazy's sins that make me drop it from being, like, really, really amazing. Um, And that is some of the things that I think excited Stephen um, negatively impacted my impression of the film just because if I'm, like, doing the math of where the plot is going, I can subtract away, divide away. I don't know how math works. Um, But basically, if I remove... If I divide away from both sides of the equation, I arrive at the same thing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So... You know, once you cross out plot points, if you can have the same film without them, 
then why do you need them? Um, sure. That's my nebulous way of saying that so much of this film is good. And it just did. It's it's like Maisie's razor just says it's too <laughs> yeah. too much. Yeah, it's just like there there were scenes in this film that are amazing. If I had to pick one scene, um, we talked about it in our review. It's a scene of uh, it's just a very very simple scene of um, of Colin Farrell just driving from the location where he's giving a speech yeah. to the location that he lives slash works, and just like scenes like that are an example of the magic of what this film does yeah, and how much it can tell you without saying anything yeah yeah and it, it's like those things are beautiful mm-hmm. because i have this weird fucked up rubric of how i judge things they're just when a credits roll if something has happened it can the one little thing can make or break a film and i mm-hmm. think there's something that broke the film for me i would not like i cannot fault steven for having this on this list i cannot fault anybody for having it on their list i can fault people who haven't seen this film because <laughs> you should see it but it's just it's it's not a list-making film for me simply because of the landing that I think it does not stick. Yeah, I, um, I hear you. The, the only thing that bolstered it even more, in my opinion, is that it's a weird comparison, but after watching Vice, so you and I saw an early screening of Vice, right? <laughs> yeah. And there was apparently an embargo up, so nobody was talking about it for like three weeks after we watched that screening. Um, and my feeling was not that juicy. I thought it was fine. I, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't hate it, didn't love it. It was fine. But I feel like Widow's has so much more, like, things to say about social and political maneuvering and cynicism in that in, like, its little offhand moments, like, just its two or three seconds that it decides to show between characters than a movie like Vice had in its whole runtime. I just feel like it's such a fucking smart movie in what it wants to show. And I, I really, really, really respect that. Even as I hear the plot points you're talking about, again, I just don't care. As I said, I cannot. Cool. I cannot fault you. Like I, I 100% agree with your your access to it. I just have to. I have to be true to me. Yeah, do it. Um. Uh, yeah. So being true to me, it's time to get to my number three. Didn't mean for that to rhyme, but it happened. Um. But before I get to my number three, I, w- I want to make a statement. Um. This statement has a lot of negative connotations nowadays. Uh oh. But I will say that Stephen. I believe in states, right? (laughs) Steven, Steven, in making his top 10 list, this entire time has been playing three-dimensional chess. (laughs) Mm. Steven created his list by saying, wait, there are things I want to talk about, but I would stake the house. Uh, That's a a gambling metaphor, right? I'll Um, I'll redo it. (laughs) Basically, Steven was saying like, I am going to purposely withhold things from my list that I have a high percentage likelihood that Chris will put on his list. Only sort of, yeah. I mean, there are, you, you've dropped hints. Right. And I mean, you've said things. There were things that could have made the list. I don't know that they would have, but they could have. And but, it was easier to sacrifice them knowing that you would talk about them. Yeah. So Steven has been playing this game when I've been just like, I'm just going to put my list out there. Steven's been like... Chris is playing tic-tac motherfucking toe. <laughs> And Stephen was like, you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna surface some interesting things that I want to talk about. Fucking let that guy take on these other films. <laughs> Stephen and I saw a lot of films at Tribeca Film Festival. A lot of them were good. I think Stephen might have thought a lot more of them were good than I thought. <laughs> well, I, let me rephrase that. I hated some of the things we saw, and I think Stephen. 
didn't hate anything as much as I hated I think some you, of things. You loved more things than I did. Though. Yeah, and I, but I also hated more things than you did. Yeah. Um, that's all fair to say. Um, my number three is a thing that we saw early on. I think we saw it early on. Go on. <laughs> my number three is the film Tully. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Tully is a fantastic film. It is. Um, it might be a film, given that I grew up where my youngest sisters were 12 years younger than me, um, and I grew up not in a parental role, but in a role where I was around and caring for younger kids than myself. Um, the fact that I am now 35 years of age and of theoretical childbearing age. <laughs> no one has put it to the test. I, I, I don't know a less awkward way to say that than that. Um, this is a film that talks about what it means to give your life to creating a life and sort of the sacrifices that you go through and like the desire, one, one film that's not on my list that I genuinely love this year was, uh, I'll just throw out one of my honorable mentions, which is A Simple Favor. Mm -hmm. Um, and in that film... Anna Kendrick's character is like this quote unquote like perfect mom, right? Where she's doing all the things and like baking all the things for the thing, uh, volunteering for all of the things at school, and just being this this like un super mommy, yeah, super mom that is not attainable. Tolly is the story of not only the reality of what it takes to be that mother that you think you want to be but the sacrifices you go through to become that person and also the toll it takes to even tr- attempt in your own mind to keep up the image of what you think you're supposed to be. It's a story about how we all, like comedians talk about it. Uh, lots of people talk about the fact that like everyone is scared. They're going to drop their baby. They all want to shake the baby. All, yeah. They all wanna, they all, you got to sway the baby. <laughs> Like every single person fears that they're the only ones who has made mistakes raising a child, and this film deals with that in a way. And even like like in the Q and A that we watched, he talked about how like they didn't want to just create this story that was their idea of what it's like to, to just their own experiences. They like pulled every single person in the crew and like all these people who are like their friends and family and like. Tell us all the things that you've never told anybody else, like the in, in in the trailer, like the dropping the baby on the phone, like you yeah. just you just put the baby down, the baby's sleeping, you dropped it, like like my when I was when I was little, I was playing with my sister on my bed and she fell off my bed backwards. <laughs> I love the passive tense there. My, I was playing with her my, and she fell. <laughs> no, but it's a thing where it's like it's like fuck. <laughs> I know I have an iPhone. <laughs> no, but like, there's things where you're like, you're like, fuck. Okay, she's okay. It's cool. Does the eye used to work? <laughs> My sister is still alive. She's totally fine. No problems. Um, but it's just like a thing where like you like every single parent is worried they're gonna roll over the child while they're sleeping. They're mm-hmm. gonna do something wrong. They're they're. Like, if they have trouble breastfeeding, they're like, like, why am I a bad mother because I'm not able to do this correctly? And on top of that, like, you deal with, like, the, the relationship between a, a husband and a wife and just 
there, there is so much complexity to the the life of getting older and bringing more life into the world that this film does that it's just it's 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 this just this amazing truth and this performance that um Charlize Theron does in this film like I I've criticized even specifically Charlize Theron in the past about like like okay like I I didn't like the film Monster and I everybody like talked about like oh she tra- it's like she's she's this beautiful woman and like people in Monster like celebrated like the fact that she went from being like one of the most beautiful women on the planet to being a monster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's the title of the film, not my judgment. Um, and and I always got kind of annoyed by that because I was like, look, I, I like I appreciate Christian Bale getting fat to play Dick Cheney, sure, but like it's also like you got fat to play Dick Cheney. Like there has to be more than just the physical transformation. Um, and I think that. This is a whole different thing that is happening in this film. It's not just like, oh, she put on a weight and she's wearing unflattering clothes and she's like crying a lot. It's like this is a fucking woman performing a broken woman mm-hmm. in a way that is just heart-wrenching but still hopeful. And the places this film goes, like I was constantly wondering and just following this film being completely wrapped up in it. And it was like – you know, when, when we stack ranked our things, I put Tolly at the top of the list because yeah. it was just one of those things where I was like, this is fucking amazing film. And I might be a little biased because of the Q&A and just like the interesting things that we're saying about it. I might be biased because of my age. I might like – there's a bunch of things that like maybe this is just a perfect Chris film. But it was just – it was an incredible journey that I was just like the entire year I've always returned to that and thought about – Tully and just the experience that I went through and even like as my brain tried to grok what was happening in this film and like go to really interesting places and where it goes I was I was I was satisfied with it and it just I I haven't returned to it it's one of those films where I don't want to return to it because I don't want to change that initial viewing of it um but it was just I, I thought it was incredible and I'm really grateful that I got to see it there um and yeah that that was the film that we didn't have on the list mm-hmm. we had booked all of our tickets for all of tribeca and at the end we had to drop a film which i still haven't seen now we're never gonna and, know what stockholm <laughs> syndrome was like <laughs> and i want to see it so bad i don't know if it's good or bad but it's just one of those things where like we almost did not see this and it would have come out while we were gone which means it could have been one of the many many films this year that we didn't get to see because we were gone that weekend or we just didn't have a chance to catch it back up on it. I'm just, I'm so grateful that I got to see it. And in that environment um, was really amazing and getting to experience uh, the conversations after the film. I was just, it was an awesome film and it gets my number three. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, contrary to your long preface, this was never really fighting for my top 10, not for 3D chess. <laughs> it, it would have easily been in the top 20. I just like didn't, I didn't know where to put it exactly, uh, but I loved this movie. I think it's amazing. Like, I loved a lot of movies this year. Like, that's yeah, yeah. the thing that I realized. Um, Charlize Theron, as you mentioned, gives an amazing performance. She does so much. I, I think this is a wonderful companion piece to Private Life in the kind of the dark side of parenthood that is not depressing and dour by virtue of being dark. It's, like, kind of hopeful. By I don't know how to explain it. There's something about... In this movie in particular, the there there's a device. I'm not going to spoil it. You've done a good job of not spoiling things so far. But there's a lot in this movie that is about how good life can get if you have help 
finally. Yeah. How different your life could be if only it were a little easier, if only things were tilted a little differently. And I think there's an emotional trick that that does that feels so sad and happy and cathartic at the same time. I, I think this movie pulls that off amazingly well. And I think it, it it's, a, it's a movie that if anyone who is a parent or a prospective parent has asked me what they should watch, I tell them, like, go rent Tolly. Watch Tolly. You're going to like it. Yeah. 100% success rate so far. Like, people love it. Um, <laughs> it is a movie that has a great buildup. It, has, it goes places you wouldn't expect, and it would be a perfect movie without that, and it is a great movie with it still. And yeah. I think, yeah, it, it's a really wonderful movie, and I feel like it's kind of getting forgotten at the end of the year, and I don't know why, because I do think it's a, a lovely look at parenthood, and it has a lot of layers going on. And it is a very crisp movie, but in a very good way. <laughs> <laughs> Are you saying there's a bad way that something can be a crisp movie? Uh, I don't know, Buried. <laughs> Buried is a fantastic film. I haven't seen it yet. What? <laughs> How are you going to criticize me about my stance on Buried? Uh, speaking of criticizing me, Carson Patrick, what is your number three? Uh, Lee Winnell also had a movie that he wrote and directed this year, which was Upgrade, uh, which was fucking awesome. And it's funny because this... Movie, I feel like, is paired up really well with Hotel Artemis, which is also on here. They came out, like, a week apart from each other, and they're just both, like, really good throwbacks in a couple of ways. Well, both is because they feel extremely odd. Like, Upgrade totally feels like a uh, a Rogue Pictures movie that would have come out in, like, 2005, and Hotel Artemis definitely feels like a WWE Studios uh, movie that would have come out in, like, 2006 or seven. Um And, you know, both are upgrade, obviously, is a great, just great throwback to, like, really, like, low-budge, like, grungy sci-fi, like, 80s sci-fi movies, like Hardware or something like that. Um, and Hotel Artemis is a, a big-time throwback to to Carpenter. All right, so Upgrade. This is like – I still can't believe I haven't seen Upgrade. Yeah. I feel like Upgrade came out way early in the year. Um, I assume for sure that if I watched this – It should it would, have been this year's Predestination, right? Well, well I was going to say it should have been this year's Hardcore Henry, which mm. is basically what it is minus the first person. Um, I still have not seen it. It has been on my list. I only half, 40% jokingly thought that I would maybe catch this in attempts to see if it might make my list, um, just because it seems right up my alley. Super insane, crazy, weird person gets weird augmentations and fights a lot of people. Um, I did not see it, though, sadly. I still want to see Upgrade. I will pull the trigger and watch it. I hope that I love it. Stephen Miller, did you ever catch Upgrade? I did not, but if you love it, I will watch it. <laughs> I was not even familiar with it. I don't think I remember hearing about it when it came out. Yeah, well, as soon as we're done watching this episode, we'll pull up the trailer for Upgrade. And oh, then, yeah. <laughs> let we'll me, let me Upgrade. <laughs> All right. It is time to get to our silver slot for uh, our top tens. And not just silver, because 
the time is getting late and we are growing old. Mm-hmm. But uh, Silver, because we are up to our number twos, Stephen Miller, what is your number two film of 2018? Mm-hmm. So for my number two, I need to do a shout out to another podcast with roughly 1,000 extra listeners that we have. <laughs> the baseline for any podcast. <laughs> so they have two listeners? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at least. Uh, so in the Little Gold Men podcast, then Joanna Robinson casually mentioned one time that she was heading to the Mill Valley Film Festival, which is the film festival where prospective Academy Award voters who live in the Bay Area often are given a chance to watch movies that might make the cut. And I remember listening on like a Thursday morning on the way to work and being like, holy shit, I live in the Bay Area. (laughs) I could go. When is the Mill Valley Film Festival? And it was three days after I was listening. And I managed to score tickets to If Beale Street Could Talk and Roma on the same day. Um, This, as Chris already knows, is about (laughs) Roma, uh, (laughs) uh, which is a movie I had heard a lot about uh, leading up to this. Uh, Alfonso Cuaron's follow-up, obviously, to Gravity. Uh, him being an amazing director, Children of Men, one of my favorite movies of all time. Gravity was an amazing movie the year it came out. I still, I have to admit, have never seen E2 Mama Tambien. I have it, to watch that. It's a good film. I'm sure it is. Um, I don't want to be the snob here who points to a Netflix movie and says, you have to see it in theaters, you have to see it in theaters, but you have to see Roma in theaters, if only because attention spans do not work as well in a living room as they do yeah. in theaters. And... This is a movie that I don't know if I were sitting in my room with 8,000 distractions, if I would have clued in enough to get in the zone that Alfonso Cuaron is trying to put me in. In that theater, though, with a sympathetic crowd, with people who want to watch it, no distractions, it was a phenomenal film-going experience. It is beautiful. It is a a black-and-white story of... Growing up in 1972, I think, in Mexico City, it's a very personal story of Alfonso Cuaron. Um, It's about a maid who works for a kind of upper-class family living there. Uh, The maid is a thinly-veiled tribute to his actual nanny who brought him up uh, in the 70s. Um, And it's basically a look that, like First Man, it's a movie that people saw as kind of distant and formal and cold. And I understand that. It's a movie that on the surface is showing here she is cleaning up after the family. Here they are going out to see the movies. Here they are with the wife and husband having an argument in the living room while she stands in the background and does the dishes. But I think there's an undercurrent of this movie that is very, very, very warm and emotional. And watching it, at least in a crowded theater, I really, really felt that. It feels like it's doing so many things without saying anything. It's talking about what it feels like to live in a time and place where you are a second-class citizen, where you are not at the forefront of society, where you exist mostly to prop up other people, but the warmth that you still feel to those around you and the way that the world kind of changes without you having any say in it. Um, It has some of the most beautiful shots of the year. There are so many things that are shot in, like, reflections or... There's a scene where people are at a Christmas party and a forest fire starts. And at first, it's just like a little light in the distance in black and white. And slowly it grows and grows and grows until it becomes a thing that kind of encompasses the whole frame and demands your attention. This is just a movie that I have no idea how long it is. I have no idea how expansive it is. I could not in good faith tell anyone else that they will love it. All I know is the like two and a half hours that I spent sitting in that theater 
being absorbed in this fake early 70s in fake Mexico th- City, like this thing that Alfonso Cuaron built from scratch in such a complete way that he can have like these enormous widescreen 360 shots and you just see everything as if you were living it. It it blew me away. I think this is an amazing movie. It is not a message film necessarily, but it does, it feels very, I don't know, it, it feels very personal. It feels like, let me give you my childhood and show you what it felt like. Yeah. And you can take it or leave it, right? Like you can, you can see what you can glean from it, which has a lot to do with my first pick also, which we'll get to in a second. Um, but I think this is a beautiful movie. It is, it's great that Netflix distribute it because it probably would not be made if not for that. But yeah, I, I mean, hate the idea that people can only catch it on Netflix too, because it, it it's a really powerful movie going experience. I think there, there's a great clip you can see online of Alfonso Cuarón uh, responding to a, a person in the audience after it won the golden globe um, asking like, why did you distribute this on Netflix? And he's like, who, who, like I, I'm going to, paraphrase and add some swearing but he's like who the fuck would have watched it if it showed in like three theaters around the country like no one's gonna show this film right like netflix gave me a chance to show it to so many people that would have not had the chance to see it because no studio would take a risk on a black and white film about this specific experience in half spanish and half aber (laughs) like uh, native native language. I don't yeah. even know the name of it. Uh, it. It's like a film that there's so many things that would have been a barrier to entry to actually be in a American studio. Yeah, yeah, and it, and it's it is a film that the only reason I have not seen it is because I specifically did not want to watch it within the context of does this make my list? Mm-hmm. I I, I want to experience it like fresh and not in the context of trying to fit it in. So I was like, you know what? I'm I'm just gonna put it off. I think it might still be playing in the city right now, um, mm-hmm. so I might try to catch it this week before it disappears forever. Um, but either way, I'm going to catch it. Um, if I have to, I'll see it on Netflix, but I'd prefer to see it in the theater. Um, so maybe instead of editing this episode, I'll see it tomorrow. <laughs> I recommend anyone listening, if you only have Netflix as an option, take your phone, put it in the other room, turn <laughs> off the lights, tell yourself like I'm going to sit here and I'm going to feel whatever the director is telling me to feel because it like, like I get the feeling of like not being able to focus for that long. And this is not a movie that gives you a bit of action every five minutes, but it there, there's something magical that it does. Like if you let it soak into you for a while. Cool. Um, all right. So it is on to my silver pick for 2018. My number two for the year is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. Oh, now I don't know your number one. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a film... Like, the trailer for this film, I feel, came out, like, the beginning of the year. It was so long ago that I feel that I saw that trailer. And I was I was extremely excited. I was I was extremely excited because it just seemed like it had this energy that we haven't seen from a lot of other superhero films. And it just had the style, and it just... I was like, this is going to be rad no matter what it turns out to be. I was not prepared for the film that it turned out to be. That style is there. It looks fucking amazing. I just rewatched it this weekend again as I was preparing for the list. Um, uh, I may have, after rewatching it, bumped it above totally. Nice. <laughs> um, it is fucking phenomenal. It is an amazing work of art. 
It is an achievement in fucking whatever technical marvel they did to pull off this sort of like just the look of it, the like the painterly look of it and like the crazy shifting also amazing in 3D. I saw it in 2D and while I was watching it I was like, well they're already doing some sort of like desaturation on the background. I can see how it might work in 3D, but I assumed it would be sort of like a 2.5D sort of thing when I mm-hmm. saw it. It looks amazing in real D, uh, which yeah. is what I saw it in. Um but the story in this is so fucking good. Uh, I, I know, I know that you saw it late, and yeah. I know that you saw it within the context of so many people praising it. And I can only assume, knowing Stephen, that I know that the praise for it may may have lessened your excitement for the film. It may have not. I don't know. Um, but it is a film that offers so much change for who we see spider-man as i mean like the the i the idea that anybody can wear the mask is a great idea but seeing it presented in this way of really anybody can be spider-man is an amazing thing miles morales is a fucking awesome character yeah um the way this film portrays who he is as the the young man that he is and how that transfers into how he joins the spider team and who the people that he befriends is is amazing the I enjoyed I like in my brain I enjoyed the conception of like the multiverse and bringing all these weird spider people together but the way it actually handles it is brilliant. I love old man <laughs> Peter Parker. Yeah. Uh, Peter B Parker like just this 30 like <laughs> late 30s uh pudgy broken Spider-Man and how he interacts with the other spider people. This film is doing so much and it's so amazing. The story is great. Um, the acting in it, uh, or I guess the voice acting in it is great. The animation is great. Um, everything about this film is so spectacular that it's just like every ounce of it is just so enjoyable, so amazing, way deeper than it needed to be to be as success- successful as it is. And it's I'm really sad that it got dropped in December against all these films that are trying to compete for the holiday season. Like I feel like... It is not doing as well as it should. I think it's done roughly 30 million domestic, 30 million worldwide, something mm-hmm. around that. And I think this film should be crushing Aquaman. Yeah. Um, I think this film should be crushing all the other films. I have, like, when, when Spider-Man Homecoming came out, I praised the villain. I praised uh, Tom Holland. I mean, obvi- he, was, he shortly appeared in uh, Civil Bro. Um, but I... I I have thought Tom Holland was an amazing Spider-Man. I was so happy that Sony gave in and let Marvel have some of Spider-Man to include him in the Avengers because I love Tom Holland. And and I have sort of been of this mind. It's like, Sony, give up the property. Yeah, you don't know what to do with it. Let it go. Just let it be part of the Avengers and Marvel again. You don't need it. And even though this film seemed very stylized and fun... It didn't feel before it came out like it was like Sony just we get it. You need to keep making Spider-Man so that you can continue to own your part of the rights. Otherwise, the rights revert to Marvel. This film proves that they should just have it mm-hmm. and do their thing because they have made an amazing fucking film that is so good. Yeah, <laughs> it is so good. Um, and I really, I just. I I love this film. I love this character. I love all of the characters in the film. John Mulaney as Spider Pig is amazing. Yeah, <laughs> Spider Ham. 
Yeah, Spider-Ham. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Nick Cage showing up as yeah, Spider-Man Noir. There, there, there's just so much of this film that's so good. And it's so, like, seeing it again, I, I don't even, it, it didn't have room to get better. But if there was room, it would have grown. Like, it, mm. it, it just, it felt, it felt, I, I, I'm trying hard not to use Amazing because I know Amazing Spider-Man is the, it, it, it's just a phenomenal film. Yep. And it's amazing. Steven joked i i replaced my facebook header with a shot of him falling into the city upside down and steven commented that like oh well obviously fucking this is like <laughs> too much praise for chris to I, I change thought it'd be your number one now i know you're number one but i still am surprised <laughs> i thought i thought this would be it do you know my number one steven we'll do you <laughs> i i i will say i loved this movie this was one that i agonized over whether or not it would make the top 10 I was fighting for it. I knew with such certainty this was 3D chess. I knew you would have it on. So I was kind of like, I didn't feel as bad if it couldn't make the cut in the end. Um, it, it's great. Like, the use of animation is innovative. I only saw it once in 2D. I would love to revisit in 3D. It, it's still playing I can, in 3D. I, would I, I can imagine it. that it is, like, very different in 3D, too. A- like AMC it, Stubbs A-list. All I'm right. Saying. I'm I'm ready for it. Um I, I think the, the way it broadens the Spider-Man universe, the way it brings in the comic book aesthetic to the movie format. I, like, I'm sure we've said this before, but I think this is the most comic book any movie has ever been. There, there, I, I, this entire year, I have not laughed as much as the cemetery scene yep. in this film. I had tears in my eyes. The second time around, knowing all the things... Having seen it already, yeah. I was I took off my 3D glasses and had to like spend like a minute and a half wiping the tears out of my eyes. Like every like, and that's the thing too is because it's animated, it does something that no live action film will ever be able to do, mm-hmm. which is communicate that level of physical humor. Yeah, and like the like Carson has complained about like the over seriousness of the Marvel films. I have celebrated some of that because there are some things related to the Tony Stark arc, Tony Stark arc that I think are really deeply, uh, like I've spent 10 years of my life, like caring about these characters. And I care about that. Carson has complained a little bit about that. This film can do things that those films will never even yeah. attempt to do. It's the power of animation. It's animation. Yeah. yeah. And, and it really, really, really nails it. I think I agree. I think this blows Spider-Man Homecoming out of the dust. And I loved Spider-Man Homecoming. Yeah. I think that was great. Uh, I love Jake Johnson as the old Spider-Man. So um, good. Really good. And a good riff on it, again, because it is broadening the Spider-Man universe. Where it's like we can be about aging and unwe- like existential angst and all these other things, right? And like it, it, it really opens it up. I think Kingman – or Kingpin. Sorry. <laughs> Kingman. <laughs> Yeah, the the golden circle. <laughs> you did have a suit. Yeah, I think Kingpin is an amazing villain who could only be realized in cartoon form. And I oh, think he's, he's so like I mean he's yeah it's, he's he's in other properties uh, yeah. that are currently involve live action. Sure, which are played by an actor that Carson has uh, celebrated on this uh, mm-hmm. uh, podcast. But it's it so much better in this cartoonish, you know, heightened reality. So amazing, definitely. The only thing, the only thing that kept it off my list even given the 3D chess, was there's something I felt it with Lego Movie. I still feel it, which is that Phil Lord and Chris Miller, they're like, if my comedy wavelength is at like 1.7, they're at like (laughs) 2.1. They're like a little more heightened than I am. And things go by a little bit faster than I process them. 
any for all the things I loved about Spider-Man, there was something about the humor and joy of it that was like a little bit quicker than I am when I've had a whiskey flight and then gone to see a theater. Nice. I, I need to watch it a second time to really yeah. feel it. But I felt it with a lot of their movies so far where they're like, they're at another wavelength and I'm not quite there. Like I'm they're, really close, but not quite They're They're like, I, I would definitely say like, I, I'll try to catch Roma this week. Mm-hmm. You try to catch. Uh, yeah. You turn your wavelength way down. I'll turn <laughs> way up. But yeah, I'll, I'll remove all color and three dimensionality and you add color and three dimensionality, mm-hmm. but no, see it in 3d. I mean, there, there, there's just a shot of Kingpin's face yeah. that takes up the whole screen and the depth between his nose and his shoulders made you cry. <laughs> it, I mean, it makes him it extremely intimidating. And <laughs> <laughs> also, also, the movie makes me want a bagel. <laughs> yeah. Deal. All right. So now that we spent enough time gushing about this film, uh, Carson Patrick, what is your number two? If I had to pick a number two. I would definitely give it to Vox Lux, um, which is a lot of great stuff coming out at the end of the year. You know, usually like the year before I was like, I'm done in October. And, you know, you pretty much call it. But there was just so much stuff where they're like, oh, wait, you know, there was some end of the year stuff that was really strong. And Vox Lux was one of them, um, which I think is I think it's a near perfect movie. I'm just going to say that. especially the last like 20 to 25 minutes, I think is pretty much perfection where we get Natalie Portman in a full blown concert pretty much. Um, but the entire movie, I was just like, Oh man, this is so fucked up and I love it. Vox Lux. I fucking hate this movie. <laughs> I, I'll, I'm just going to say it. Um, I, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm going to even go out on a limb and say that Carson knows without even me saying anything that I did dis- dislike this film. Um, and by dislike, I mean fucking hate. Um, Even though Lox Vox is your favorite bagel, and we've already established <laughs> how much bagels mean to you. Oh, Steven. Steven, Steven, Steven. <laughs> I appreciate that joke. Um, but yes, this is a film that I was excited to see. Um, I almost saw at the Mill Valley Film Festival, uh, a film festival that we've mentioned earlier on this episode. Um, I missed it, um, decided not to see it. Caught it at an Alamo screening with the producer and the director, maybe? Natalie something? No, Natalie was not there, unfortunately. Um, but I saw this film, and I really... I I mean, I think it's an irresponsible film. I think the choice to use some of the imagery that it does with no benefit, um, I think, to the story is potentially disrespectful i, don't, I am I, intrigued now <laughs> I, I i if you open your film with a school shooting a uh, number of terrorist shots later in the film like they're, they're 9-11 imagery it broke the sicario the, two principle the, literally the I'm, I'm just gonna paraphrase what the director said in the q a he said if i look back on my life it is defined by a few events Columbine, 9-11, I forget the other one. So I decided to make a movie about that. This is literally, this is, uh, the party's just beginning. Mm -hmm. It's like, this is exactly how I felt about that film, except for rather than pick one subject matter that I felt uncomfortable about the the writer-director's decision to tell a story about surrounding that thing, 
he chose four different things and set his story around a pop star who's birthed out of several different tragedies throughout her life. And I don't appreciate that choice. And I think that this film does a lot of weird things and evokes imagery that it does nothing with. And I am slightly insulted and disapprove of the decision to make the film at all. (laughs) Um, I love Natalie Portman. She acts the shit out of this film. I think it's a bad film, and I think it was a bad decision to make. <laughs> um, wow. Like, See, I, I knew people like were having mixed opinions on this movie. I had no idea it was like for such specific reasons. <laughs> no, it's very, very, very specific. Like, I wanted to leave, but because the director was there, not out of respect for him. I wanted to hear him justify the decisions he made, and I was not satisfied with the de- with the decisions that were made. Wow. So I'm definitely going to watch this movie now. <laughs> <laughs> I have to weigh in on this. <laughs> also, he's probably never going to listen to this. A little bit of a dick. Somebody in the audience asked the following question. So this is a film about a pop star. They said, um, Is it true that you never stop never stopping? <laughs> nice no no but somebody in the audience asked the following question they said given that this is a story about a pop star and surrounds her making of music and blah 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 um very little of the soundtrack is her pop music is there a reason behind that decision to make his response was where else would you choose to put pop music and then whenever, when it was dead silent for about 30 seconds, he said, I mean, 30 minutes out of the two and a half hours of this fucking movie, I don't know how long it actually is, but it felt extremely long. 30 minutes of it is pop music. 30 minutes of it is other soundtrack. The rest of it is silent. Mm. I think it's a good balance. <laughs> he sounds like a real heart warmer. Yeah, I, like I, Taylor I, Sheridan. I, there was so much of like nothing about my experience of watching this film or sitting through the Q&A had me excited. And I'm very, very sorry if you are listening, director, writer, person and producer. But I just I, I did not appreciate I did not experience this film the way you intended me to experience it. And I don't know whose fault that is. Let's call it 50 50. Mm. Great movie, by the way. <laughs> Fifty Fifty is a great fucking film. <laughs> Those are number two. <laughs> so my number one is a movie I believe I experienced exactly as the director intended me to. It also featured a Q and A. Christopher Schnee, already knows it. You can reveal it if you want to, or not. I, I you don't know it. I don't. You don't know the number one. My number one. It's a little film called Eighth Grade. <laughs> oh yeah, duh. I uh, I knew that. I just yeah. I'm so I'm so distraught by my recounting of my experience in Vox Lux that I could not remember. But I knew it was Eighth Grade. Mm. This is a movie Chris already has said many of the good things about it. It does not deserve to be as good as it is. It's certainly not by a first time director, by a comedian who became famous from Vine videos 
who then became a stand-up and then became a director. How the fuck can you be so good at so many different things? It is not fair. This is a movie about growing up that takes it seriously. I think that's what I love about this movie. This is a movie that says, like, I hear you. I see what is hard about being 13. I want to make a movie about that. I want to take you seriously. I want to understand what is difficult, and I want to represent that on screen. This is a movie that can make a pool scene, like a pool party, feel like a disaster, <laughs> feel like a terrifying, <laughs> terrifying experience. Steven, anytime I get in the pool, it's a disaster. I know. This is a movie that can make getting a phone call from a girl who is probably like a sophomore in high school feel like the most amazing thing in the world, like uplift you, just make you feel so excited. It's It has the best, most feel-good, cry-your-eyes-out, father-child conversation of any movie I've seen in a while, and that includes Call Me By Your Name, which I loved. Um, <laughs> this this is just a movie about growing up, and I know that is well-trodden territory, but I think there's something about the the way this movie takes the eighth-grade experience at face value and doesn't patronize it. It doesn't try to make it too cute or too dumb. It just says, like, here is what it is, and we're going to have a little bit at the periphery about social media and how that modifies it. We're going to have little things from the future where we're looking back feeling nostalgic, but for the most part, we are just going to hear you. We're going to hear what terrifies you, what makes you happy, what makes you sad, and we are going to feel everything you feel. And I think if there's a Steven movie, like, this is fucking it. <laughs> I, I knew from the moment we saw this movie that this was going to be at least in the running for my favorite film of the year. And it it delivered. I just, I, I don't know, I, I empathize so much, even though I am of a different generation, you know, I'm of a different age group than Kayla. I just feel that pain and that awkwardness. I think there's something very universal about this movie, something that it, it it's just such a well-done movie. I, I don't know what to say that hasn't been said already, but I love this movie. I think anyone should find something to love in it. I think people of our age definitely could. I think people of her generation would see things to relate to. I I just think it's it's beautiful and it feels good to love and I love rooting for it. I don't care that Elsie Fisher was happy that Bohemian Rhapsody won <laughs> the Golden Globes. Go for it, Elsie. You be yeah. you, you know. You root for what you want to root for. I'm I love this movie. Yeah, I mean the, uh I it was on my list. Um it is a fantastic film. And I think that you know we we threw out all these caveats uh, earlier in in the episode about how these are our favorite films, not necessarily the best films. I think Eighth Grade is one of the best films of the year, right. um, and that is I I'll fight anybody who disagrees. <laughs> no, I mean I I it, it's, I stand behind that statement. Um, I think that um, it's just it's just true. It's 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 really a fantastic film. Um, due to other things, it doesn't make the number one slot for me, but it's. It's 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 an amazing film and I can't argue with that at all. Yeah. Yeah, I think when it came out I was kind of of the mindset of like oh the my favorite film of the year is going to be more serious quote. It's going to be like tackling broader themes. It's going to be more dark. I don't know. <laughs> that that's kind of my general trend. And I kind of scoffed off the idea that like when award season came around I would be rooting for this over other things. But the year has come and gone and like God damn it, I want this to win something. <laughs> like, yeah. I, I feel like this is... It isn't only the, like, hard-on-your-sleeve indie. There's lots of things in my honorable mentions that is going to fill that category. I think this does something more, and I think it... It's just so, like... 
it is exactly what Bo Burnham wanted it to be, and I think it's just a complete story, and it it accomplishes everything it set out to do, and I think it's very rare for a movie to do that in a tight, coherent package. So I do think it's worth celebrating beyond just the hard-on-your-sleeve, touchy-feely Steven stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, yeah, it was fantastic, and it, it was also one of the things where, like, I, I, I had a second nitpick about the film, but that's... I. I, I do enjoy our long walk home with me getting an argument with you and Joanna oh, yeah. <laughs> about a certain part of the film and then me getting in the same argument with my girlfriend <laughs> about the film after Did she, she love sees it? it? Did she love it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Thank yeah. God. Um, no, I mean, I loved it too. It just that, that one little nitpick, um, it was just, it, it was funny to me. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, clearly, I was wrong. <laughs> Um, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's a, it's a great film. And I think, I think even watching the film, there was like a tiny thing that made me uncomfortable about the fact that this like older white male was making the story about a young 13 year old girl. And during the Q and a, like he had what, what I thought was a great response, which was like, I wanted to make this film about this age group. And I spent like all this time watching these videos online and all of the boys videos on YouTube and et cetera. We're talking about Minecraft and like bullshit and all the girls were talking about their feelings and things mm-hmm. that actually mattered. And I realized that like I I I need to tell this story because like I, I just felt I felt more comfortable listening to him kind of justify things himself than I did with like a little bit of the back of my mind where I was thinking of like why are you telling this specific story? Mm-hmm. Um and yeah, like he he nailed he nailed the story. I just part of me was like is he allowed to nail this story? <laughs> and I was like, no, nah, it's cool. I'm happy with the, I'm happy with the results. Yeah, I, I think he does it. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Hmm. All right, so now we're on to my number one. You said you did or didn't know it. I don't know anymore because you expressed shock that I would know it. So I, now I'm like, now I'm questioning what I know. I believe, if I'm right, it's an overlap movie but that could be so many that could be nine other things <laughs> okay i'm just gonna say my guess you yep. can do what you want with it i know you loved first man so i'm gonna throw it out there as your potential number one <laughs> it's a potential number one mm. um i think when we reviewed the film that is my number one mm. i made something that is approximately the following statement quote approximately this may be reductive, but I think this might be the Dunkirk of this year. Ooh. And I believe I said that. I've definitely said that out loud. I'm pretty sure I said it on the air, and I'm pretty sure I said it about the film First Man. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, First Man is a fucking incredible film. Um, it is much like Dunkirk. It is a very experiential film. And it is a film that is less about the overall story and more about the experience of how somebody sees the path that they are on and what they're doing and the effort they're putting into the goal. Um, I was amazed by the presentation of this film, the way it made you feel like you were in the experience, the way it made you feel the desire to accomplish this goal of going to the moon, the way it made you feel how much of a sacrifice it is to do something that is stupid 
It's fucking stupid. Yeah. Like, there's no reason we should have been trying. Like, we were going to the moon because of some misguided, like, the Russians are doing spacewalks and putting four fucking satellites in space. And, like, they're beating us to all these goals. Why don't we pick the furthest possible goal that they don't even think is possible and go do that? Why don't we waste resources? Why don't we do this thing? Why don't we kill men in the pursuit of this goal that is... To get the, to a white rock. Theoretically in the for of nothing. Yeah. It, it's it's there there is nothing we theoretically actually gained from going to the moon other than the fact that we did it and it was nearly impossible to do. And we made that happen. And this film makes you feel the sacrifice. It makes you feel the experience. This film opens with a man in a rickety ass fucking glider with a rocket taped to the back of it. Almost bouncing off the af- the atmosphere into certain death for no reason, mm-hmm. no reason, other than to get to this artificial goal that we have set for ourselves, which is to go to the moon, land there. And I think that this film shows the pursuit and juxtaposes it to one man's life experience. And his sort of disassociation from his family and emotion altogether, maybe. Yeah. And, and just kind of couches this one journey through one man. I mean, we like we talked about, uh, maybe I brought this up in the episode, but like the uh, the Jobs film. Um, right. not, not the Ashton Kutcher one, but the, the Fassbender one. Mm-hmm. Um, Danny Boyle's uh, Jobs film is all about like, what if I reduce this man... Down to these three moments in time. Yeah. yeah, through conversations. And this is a film of what if I reduce this one man down to just a single drive, which is to escape the grief, mm-hmm. the struggles of family life, and reduce everything to this one goal, which is like maybe if I can just get to and accomplish this goal of arriving on the moon, that I can release this tension right. that is... Every, everything I've experienced my entire life. And I think it's it's such an amazing experience. Um, and something that, like, if you don't... If you didn't see it in theaters, you will never experience it the correct way. Like, mm-hmm. I'll just say that. Like, yeah, I, the, I don't... The, the IMAX in particular is very, very, very specific to what the movie does. Yeah, and, and, it, and it's there... Th- this film ends with a gut punch. This film has so many moments that are just terrifying and like i i've talked in this film even when we review silly films like life um i've talked about how like space is terrifying Mm -hmm. it's just cold lack of oxygen nothingness and any film that deals with us going there is inherently scary and this film is like what if we were going there but we didn't have any technology we had like a calculator and a piece of paper and you had to figure out how to not die and I, i think that this film just does something amazing in the way it presents this reality and this one man and you may not agree with his motivations you may not agree with the way he treats his family his disconnection from others the way he treats his supposed friends like he's not put on a pedestal he's not this hero he's this person who was driven to do a thing because Mm -hmm. and i think that it's just it's an amazing film and of all the things I've seen all year, this is the one thing that I saw, and I was like, "That was, that that was a thing that I cannot unlive." That was amazing. Um, 
I'm really excited to listen to the audiobook of the 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 right stuff. What's the what's the there's the book all about like the men who like made that mission possible. Um mm-hmm. it has some title like that. Uh but uh, I'm excited to listen to that. Um I'm I just, just everything about this film I thought was just this amazing ride and I didn't have that other emotional tickle from any other film this year that would have mm-hmm. put anything above it. And it was just one of those things where like when I was making my list, I was like, first man, number one, body, number 10. Spider-Man is going somewhere in that top five. Yeah. <laughs> and you swing in. Totally has to be up there somewhere because that shit floored me. And it was just, it was just a thing where I was like this, like nothing can compete with the experience I had watching first man rewatched it last night just, oh, yeah. to, just to make sure i wasn't insane still holds up even on a little tiny laptop screen <laughs> which yep. was all that was available to me at the time um but it, it, it's 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 a fantastic film and i'm so happy that it came out i'm slightly scared <laughs> for oscar season oh it, uh, it's not gonna get shit but it yeah, is yeah. amazing yeah no I, i'm fine with i'm fine with it not getting anything for the record I'm just very worried about the potential of what it's going up against and mm. really fucked up shit happening again. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I had it on my list. Obviously I think it's an amazing movie. I think it, I, I think Damien Chazelle does a almost impossible task, which is he, he manages to glorify this thing that felt really important to a lot of people. Like anyone who was alive in that time, they reference this as their calibration point of what humanity can do, what society can do when they move together. Those, we put a man on the moon, you know, we, we put a man on the moon and the meaning of that sentence is really hard to convey to our generation who have not lived through any kind of moon landing, right? As far as yeah. I know, any really NASA activity at all. Um, China just landed on like the dark side of the moon, right? With a, a automated probe. <laughs> yeah. And played, uh, <laughs> Played the Wizard of Oz when they landed there. <laughs> See what would happen. Um, but but th- this movie really conveys it, it. It does something where it shows a triumph without putting a halo on it. Like it, yeah. it doesn't show it in a overly overly glorified light. It doesn't do the Ron Howard thing. It doesn't do the kind of like look at the majesty of this accomplishment. It just says. Look at how fucking crazy this is, you know? And this is a thing Damien Chazelle has been interested in forever, right? Whiplash is kind of like this too. Like, Whiplash ends in a scene that makes you see, like, wow, people pursuing something to the most extreme degree possible is inspiring and terrifying and cathartic in a very strange way. Yeah. (laughs) And I think this movie is all about that space. I I, I completely agree. I think it's a... A amazing movie i think it is kind of getting shafted by critics who are i don't even know what they're getting caught up on necessarily because i think this movie is doing something that other movies have not tried to do it, this year everyone that i've heard talk about it praises it they're yeah. just not listing it anywhere and i and i think that like it's like as, as you're saying like we today living now we have fucking rockets that go up fall back to earth and then land autonomously on floating barges in the ocean. Mm-hmm. They had a calculator and a piece of paper and radio waves. Yeah. <laughs> and like, 
like we can't appreciate how inconceivable it was that this mission actually was a fucking success. Yeah. They had Taraji P. Henson basically like doing <laughs> math on a piece of paper, saying like, "This is where you're gonna land. Good luck." <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's, it's crazy to me that like we take for granted so much of this, and it, I, I think that this film puts that in perspective. I mean, sure, you have Apollo 13, and you have like the scene where they're like, "Oh, we gotta take these ten parts and like." make a rebreather out of it and you're like cool i get the tension of that they're gonna starve of oxygen deprivation mm. right um it's tension in like a uh... nope i don't got it yeah, yeah but but i i think that like much like gravity um which was top five list when yeah. the year that, that came out like it's a thing where it just puts in perspective the how helpless you are this isn't like there are aliens coming to get you and that's why you're helpless this is like you're just there, and best case scenario, if we wanted to send help, it would be like a month before we can send a rocket up, right? Mm-hmm. We gotta like get the resources together, build the thing. We gotta yeah. wait for the weather to be just right, and then we send something up. Like there, there there's no, there's like even the, the scene in First Man where like like we all know that he makes it to the moon and makes it back because that's history but like the scene where they're reading the letter that they will read to the american people mm-hmm. if the mission fails is heart-wrenching like yeah. you're just like you, you know they're going like, to i watching it a second time i got emotional just the idea of the presenting this information to the people about how these people who journey to the moon like the moon will be their final resting place and like blah 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 like i, I totally don't remember the actual mm-hmm. message but like it's it's incredible what the achievement is, and not in a fucking go America way, just in a that mankind as anything in the, the history of the universe mm-hmm. was able to build a missile and throw people into space yeah. and have them return alive. Was able to and wanted to. Right? Yeah, yeah. That, that's kind of the amazing aspect of it all is that like we have this drive to do that. Yeah, yeah. Like it's just, it's 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 an incredible film about an incredible achievement of humans as a species on this planet. Like it's just it's it's harrowing and not in like a jingoistic way. It's just like a it just yeah. Crazy. I also would very much push back on people who think it like is not an emotional story. I think the emotions are there like right below the surface. Like Ryan Gosling is this buffer between you and the emotional core of the movie, but. It is like waiting to erupt, and I I feel like you just feel it through every frame of this movie. I think I think there's a lot there about the fear and the the little like Jenga block tower that is yeah. like the masculine experience and the stoic like I'm gonna do it for my country experience. And right below that, you feel like anything could happen right now. Yeah, I mean I mean like as I said, we know through history that they make it back. Yeah. There's a mission in the middle of the film. Which is when they're testing different components of of the launch, and something bad is happening. We know they make it because they haven't even flown to the moon yet, yeah. so we definitely know they survive. And uh, NASA decides to cut a radio feed to the wife, and her panic made me tear up. Yeah, I know that she's gonna go have the "you're a bunch of boys," whatever speech. But just her reaction to why did this go dead? Who turned it off? I need to go yell at somebody. Mm-hmm. Her reaction to that felt so real. The danger of that situation felt real. I know that they're going to make it. 
because this is not even the Apollo mission. Yeah. This is the Gemini whatever mission. Like it, it's, it just works always because it's real. And, and, and even like the, the, the knowing the, like I talked about this in the, in the, the original review that we did of this, but just the fact that like all of the people in the program get put on this one block. So if anybody at any point doesn't make it on any mission whatsoever, the wife and kids of that astronaut live next door to you. It's not like on the other side of the Bay Area, there's some person who died and I don't really, I knew their, I knew the guy and I feel sad, but I don't know the family. It's like you have dinner every night and you hang out because those are the only people you can hang out with because that's your block on the military base or whatever. Yeah, it's like this unique twist on the army wife idea right? yeah yeah, like yeah. This very specific yeah. family devoted to this crazy crazy thing that could just lose your husband in a minute yeah yeah for and not even yeah it's, it's crazy <laughs> i agree i All knew right. it was gonna be your number one i'm glad i wasn't wrong you <laughs> <laughs> had me worried for a second <laughs> you know what wasn't my number one steven so um number one was definitely Aquaman, and I could have just listed that 25 times and called it a day, um, but, uh, you know, that that would probably, uh, whatever. Anyway, um, I, I already know this is going to go off the rails, um, but Aquaman, yeah, I mean, can we just get James Wan to direct everything? Uh, I mean, I was excited to see Aquaman... And I went in thinking, like, this is going to be fun. But, man, I was not ready for it. I just was not... I don't know what I was thinking, but I was just not ready for what I, uh, for that. <laughs> the, the movie being at a 10 the entire time. Uh, it's just... It's a movie... One of the... A movie that, you know, for the first time in a while where I just sat there... The entire time and was like how the fuck did they do that like there's so much going on in each frame of this movie like there's so much to take in like so much so many little cool details to all these different worlds that they've created um it reminded me a lot of valerian uh and how there was just like so much to see in that um and I never thought it would be possible, but th- this makes Valerian look over the top. Like, Valerian looks like a fucking boring European drama compared to Aquaman. Like, the- Aquaman is just in a whole different league, and it looks so good. Like, I mean, there's just, there's all these different things, obviously, like, you know, a lot of times they're underwater, and, like, their hair is moving, and they have to cgi the hair to make it look like it's floating you know underwater and stuff and like all you know stuff like that was just you know that that was making me go like this is just crazy and just like all the action scenes of course uh assembled together it just everything looked like it cost about 200 million dollars like every frame like i was just it, it just looks so crazy expensive um and james wan you know like Again, I should have we sh- I should have known going in, but that that opening sequence where we get Nicole Kidman uh fighting off those like uh, storm underwater stormtrooper looking dudes. <laughs> you know, I'm just like, "Holy shit. 
Like that, that was just the way that fight scene was shot too, was very much like the, uh, uh, Statham rock fight in Furious 7. And it's just, and then the movie just never lets up from there. It's just one giant, awesome set piece after another. Um, and I think my favorite was the rooftop chase, which feels very much like, uh, to me, it felt like a, a live action version of the, uh, the, the bike chase, the motorbike chase in Tintin, um, but man, there's just so much going on. Like James Wan and everyone in the cast is having a blast. Like he's taking his, he's letting his imagination and creativity just run wild. And we're just getting so much, so much cool stuff. Um, just, I just, it's like this movie is like every genre. Like it's just got everything in it. And when you think it's like there's nothing left to, to be in it. You know, then they were like, all right, now we're in the center of the world and there's fucking giant dinosaurs and, and diamonds. And it's just like, it's, you know, it's nonstop. Um, but I think my favorite part of that, of that rooftop chase is at the end when Amber Heard jumps off of a building, crashes through the roof of a, of like a wine store and then uses the wine to kill the bad guys. Like that was just like, that felt very much like a like James Wan going, like, you know, it'd be cool if we just if she killed this guy with the wine. Like I just that seems like he was just like I say, he's letting every his imagination just run wild, and it was such a blast uh, to watch. So Aquaman is for sure my number one. No, I, it's funny when so so Carson sent us his list of his top, and it literally said. One period, Aquaman, and then just an alphabetical list below that. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't until I listened to the beginning of the audio that I heard that he's like, yeah, the rest is just can be whatever. Um, but Aquaman's my number one. And I, I think reading the list, I was like, hey, that's on brand for Carson because most people do not like Aquaman. <laughs> and I can see him being excited for it. But I mean, listening to Carson's justification for it, I don't think it's just completely contrarian. Like, I totally buy all no, the things sure. that he left in that film. Um, and I can, it totally 100% makes sense why this is his favorite film. I think when I saw the trailer for Aquaman, I was exactly where he is now. Me too. Yeah. I yeah. felt that also. And I, I was like, this is going to, like, DC's back, baby. Yeah. Like, I, I was really excited for where we were going to go after having had so many missteps. I mean, admittedly, Carson doesn't think there's as much missteps as I do, but I, I, I was very, very excited for where we were going with Aquaman. And I think the execution of Aquaman, everything he is praising is there. There are fun things. There are cool things. There are great ideas. There are interesting visual feasts within the film. I just think that the film is overly long. And I just have many issues with the enjoyability of it as a whole. Mm -hmm. I, I think that um, I've joked with you um, about how in our review of um, Fantastic Beasts, The Crimes of Grindelwald, we talked about how, like, this is not a whole movie. This is, like, part one of, like, three films. Yeah. Aquaman is what happens if all three of those films were one film. Yep. <laughs> because the villain is the exactly Grindelwald. 
he has the exact same motivations. He has the same fear, except for rather than madges and no madges, it's... Is it madges? Is that what they're called? Yeah. Okay. Madges and no madges. It's surface dwellers and subsurface dwellers. Um, And this is what happens if the guy does the big circle fire thing and then also rallies the troops and then also has the war and also has a backstory. It's a lot. And also has a pre-backstory that results in his birth. And I think that this film is so long and I lose patience. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I was prepared to have a lot of fun with this movie. I mean, I one evolution over the last few years of the podcast is I've started to enjoy dumb genre movies more. Not just dumb, like... Uh, that's a value statement or whatever, but just like movies that bask in the muchness of it, like deciding like we are just going to do everything and you are going to be along for the ride. I was ready for that for Aquaman. I I was so excited given the hype that people were giving it of like being a ridiculous, crazy DC universe joyride. And I got to say, I was bored. (laughs) I, I felt like it was so long. There were so many things going on. I couldn't get a handle on it. I did not, track with the cg of the movie at all it felt very unreal in like a power rangers way and not necessarily in like a fun comic book way there was something about it that i was not tracking at all i get that this is james wan doing the james wan thing times infinity like i understand that but yeah something did not land for me the way that it landed for not just carson matt patches loved this movie too like there are people who love this movie um yeah for legitimate reason but it i I was not among them. I wanted it to be over before it was over. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that is our top ten list for the year. Um, as we stated at the beginning of this episode, creating a top ten is difficult. There are a lot of films that we have to leave off the list. Um, so why don't we take a moment to kind of discuss some of the things that didn't make our list that we want to have, you know, like an honor- honorable mention for um, and just kind of talk about liking so that maybe people can check it out. Yeah. Steven? Oh, God, there's so many. Um, at the top, the way I defined it, I already left off Minding the Gap and The Rider because I didn't want to have to find a way to fit those in. Both of those movies I totally loved. Almost definitely would make a <laughs> written top 20 list or whatever. Um, other things that were on my list as recently as like six hours ago. Uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Thought yeah. that movie was awesome and kind of criminally overlooked too because of the Netflix thing. Support the Girls. I thought that was a great, lighthearted movie. It wasn't Mumblecore, but it had some of the like things that made Mumblecore so great. Thoroughbreds, I really wanted to praise that movie because I loved it. And I feel like people have all forgotten that it came out this year. That, that um, might have been one of the ones when I was making my uh, list that I totally forgot. I thought it Oh, no, it's been, on there. I thought it might have been one of your forgotten ones. That was my number 10 until like four hours ago. Nice. Um, we started recording four hours ago until like six hours ago. <laughs> uh, in that vein, American Animals, uh, another movie that is close enough to documentary. It's like blurring the line between fact and fiction. I, that was just a great movie. They built intensity really well. Uh, Mission Impossible Fallout, like you mentioned, Leave No Trace was a great Steven movie this year, I thought. Bad Times at the El Royale, I really enjoyed this movie. I wanted to praise that more. Other stuff I really, 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 really like. Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse we talked about. Black Panther, Sorry to Bother You, If Beale Street Could Talk. Skate Kitchen and Mid-90s. 
two other wonderful skate movies of the year, Thunder Road, <laughs> Game Night, Blockers, Death of Stalin, Madeline's Madeline. There are a bunch of can movies I didn't add because it felt like nobody got to see them, so it'd be too douchey to do it. But Dogman, Wild Pear Tree, Under the Silver Lake, those are all really good movies that are coming out. I Love Dogs, You Were Never Really Here, Won't You Be My Neighbor, The Kindergarten Teacher. That was a... <laughs> I don't even know what that is. That is Maggie Gyllenhaal uh, in a Netflix movie as a woman who gets obsessed over this kindergartner who she thinks is a genius, and she becomes eerily overprotective of him and his strength in a way that is very interesting. It's a remake of an Israeli movie. A huh. um, lot, of, lot of good things. Uh, a Star is Born I really liked. Like It, it wasn't going to make this list, but I, I, I thought it was a great movie that did what it wanted to do very well. Uh, too many things to talk about. Paddington 2, I loved also. Like, I know David Ehrlich is waving the flag on that more than anybody else, but what a charming fucking movie to watch on an airplane. <laughs> I, I've i still seen neither of the Paddington films. I thought about potentially trying to see it when making my list, and I was like, no, because I'll have to watch both of them, and that will give it unfair advantage yep. to uh, making a list against other films. It is a lovely, lovely, lovely movie. Uh, and then there are movies that I think I need to watch a second time. They deserve a second chance. Aquaman. Uh, Burning. <laughs> uh, the Favorite is a movie that I quite liked, but I didn't get what everyone was so hyped about. Like, this made a lot of number ones this year. A lot of people were really into it. I just thought it was Yorgos tempering down his style a little bit in a way that was nice, but nothing too crazy. Uh, and First Reformed is a movie that has, like, my name written all over it. I was just fine with it when I saw it. So, uh, so I will say this about Burning, which I have unfortunately not been able to see yet. Mm-hmm. But coming out of Cannes, there were two films that were both in conversations. Both of them came out here in the city around the same time, and that was Burning and Shoplifters. And I feel that, like, I mean, obviously, Shoplifters got the the award at Cannes. Um, Burning was the more well-reviewed one, though. I feel like you very much underplayed burning like all you said to me was like you liked it the trailer sells a different film than it is and every conversation i've heard about burning makes me think i should have watched burning instead of shoplifters probably, yeah, probably. <laughs> That's like, true. There, there's more of a mystery and more of the like guy and girl drama in in burning definitely yeah i'm, I'm still ex- i'm excited to watch burning as soon as it's available for streaming i'm gonna rent it yeah my um, hang-ups about murakami were too too strong <laughs> Um, yeah, so for me, um, not even trying to like go off the cuff of things I want to just looking at my spreadsheet. I talked about how I made the list of first I gave everything a one, then I switched everything to a zero, one, and a two, blah, blah, blah. If I go back to my list, all the zeros are things that made the top 10. There was a single one before I reached the twos. Mm. Um, and I, I didn't plan this, I'm just looking at my spreadsheet. The single one on the list is Beautiful Boy, mm. um, which is a film that I, I really, really loved. I think it is an amazing version of that story. Lots of films try to tell that story. I still haven't seen Ben is Back um, with Lucas Hedges and Julie Roberts. Um, feels like a very, very, very similar story. But I, I just think that the way that Beautiful Boy handled that story from both sides and sort of made you live through the experience of not just watching the person with the problem and 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 trying to follow them and feel sympathy towards them, but seeing how that person affects the family from the family's point of view instead of always being 
their experience of disappointing the family. I, I, I just thought it was handled in a really, really interesting way, and I thought it was a beautiful film. Um, if I go down to the next tier of things that were in contention, um, things like uh, All About Nina, which I really, really loved. I thought um, that would maybe make your list, actually. It was, it was, potentially, it was potentially up there. It was a yeah. film that I, I really, really loved and I had a, a great time with. Um, uh, Overlord, yeah. which we jokingly talked about being in my top ten. It was not... It was not able to make them a top ten, but it is. It is so like, it's so checks all. It, it's one of those films where it's like, there's nothing wrong with it. Mm-hmm. It's great. It just doesn't excel. But I was so amazed by what Overlord turned out to be that that was like, it. It was never truly in contention for a top ten, but it was like in the range of putting things like Searching in there. It was honestly like I could have swapped it in. Yeah. But it's just those things had a novelty that Overlord didn't have. But I thought Overlord was great. Um, I'm still going to go to back for Duck Butter. <laughs> I really, really love Duck Butter. Um, maybe a bunch of things wrong with me. <laughs> but uh, but I, I thought that was a beautiful story from people that I'm very, very happy to be involved in it um, on all sides. <laughs> you know, I kind of thought Elephant and the Butterfly was going to make your list. It So that one... That's still like I'll, I'll go back to what I said in that review. I want that to win awards. I want her to get money to make mm-hmm. more films. She made such a beautiful film. It's a thing that I want to go back and rewatch. And I think that maybe if I rewatched it, it could have been in in my list. It's one of the if I had to choose not what was my best experience, but the thing I want to win from Tribeca, it's Elephant and the Butterfly. Mm-hmm. It's the most. Um, it's. It's the person I'm rooting for, the film that I'm rooting for the most, not necessarily the thing that carried me the most. Mm-hmm. It, it's just – it's such a beautiful concept and idea and performances from all of the characters, uh, especially the little girl. It, it's just – it's such a touching, interesting film. I want to love it even more than I do already love it. Um, but yeah, so so Elephant and the Butterfly is definitely there as a happy one. Um, you already mentioned um, – um, American Animals, um, obviously, Alex Strangelove, and uh, what was the other one? Happy Anniversary? No, 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 no. <laughs> Similar subject matter to Alex uh, Love, Simon. Love, Simon. Yeah. Those are two films that I, like, I just had an amazing time with that I thought were extremely heartwarming, um, really amazing. Um, Black Panther, great. Uh, Avengers Infinity War, I really loved. Um, uh, A Civil Favor, which I teased earlier in the episode, really, really great. And uh, Stay Like Sleep, you already mentioned. Um, amazing. Um, let's see. Any last things? Uh, Battle of Buster Shrugs, you already said. Mid-90s is the last one. Yeah, I, I, I know there's been a lot of hate <laughs> from different More places. than I would have expected. I think it's just because Jonah Hill is like... He's pretentious enough and famous enough that people are like annoyed that he would try I, to do this. I think if... It, not even if he was more humble, but if he was more afraid. Mm. Like, if he was just literally, like, like very, very timid and, like, oh, I don't want to be in the limelight, uh, I think that mid-90s would be celebrated a lot more. But I think because he's, like, yeah, I just wanted to, like, make this skate film because, like, I was, like, a skater back in the day. And I just, like, I love writing. And then I wrote this thing. And then I was, like, what if I directed it? Like, I, I, mm-hmm. I think there's just – there's I think there's some sort of backlash against – just the existence of this project. Yeah. And maybe if he shot it in like 16.9 or something, like, 
Um, I, I, I just feel, I just feel that there's some sort of unnecessary distaste for the film from people, but I, I, I enjoyed it. It felt very authentic and, um, I was very happy with yeah. the way it turned out. You got to watch Skate Kitchen though. Just to I, I'm the still going still gonna to watch Skate Kitchen. It's good. Carson Patrick. I see some real quick, like honorable mentions that aren't even on this list are, um, one is destroyer with nicole kidman i feel like just missed the cut but like they they promoted this movie as like a very like awardsy type movie but in reality it's kind of just like the cinematic version of a tool song like if you if you listen to sober by tool like the guitar riffs and bass riffs in that is the score for this movie like no no joke um it's also like that's how it feels like a very trashy arts movie in disguise as an awards movie which you know i was so that delighted me obviously but i think i think it was just it was a solid movie and Sarah and I were kind of, you know, distracted by Nicole Kidman's wig in it, her hairstyle, um, during the movie. But then we just can't seem to stop talking about it afterwards. So I feel like whatever they did, it was like, it felt so wrong that it was right, you know? Like, now it's just like, it's almost just, it's like, well, did she get that? Did she get inspiration from her husband, you know? Or uh, we like to think that it's a, a it's a very, like, Johnny Resnick of the Goo Goo Dolls haircut, you know, um, which gives it an extra layer of entertainment. But uh, the fact that we're still talking about it, I think, is, is worth mentioning. Um, and just the movie overall, like, I'm, I'm still kind of thinking about it. Just like, yeah, that was, that was a lot better than I was uh, anticipating. Um, and then also... Just a real quick shout out to um, the spy who dumped me because overall, good, I, entertaining, lots of laughs. But I just am still so impressed by the fact that they got the tone of that movie right. That movie looks exactly like a Mission Impossible or a Bond or a Bourne movie. It looks like a legit action movie. Uh, and then there's the comedy instead of the other way around. And that's kind of where I feel like, you know, you, you, you it kind of things can fall apart. So the fact that they, they got it looking like a legit action movie, um, that was, they did it the right way. It was, it was awesome. Um, and then another movie that I'm still kind of thinking about, um, and it, and it earns the award of, um, you know, I've, I've talked a lot about, you know, you should never shut off a movie. You should never walk out of a movie. And I always give the example of the movie, the international with Clive Owen, um, because, you know, that's a, that's a decent movie, but then that, you know, that Guggenheim shootout comes along and you're like, Oh, this is a fucking awesome movie. Like, you know, if you were to check out before then you would miss this really great scene and I think elevates the movie even more. Um, so that, I feel like that example has been eclipsed this past year with the strangers pray at night, which if you were like me, you were probably asking, why do we need a sequel to the strangers, uh, 10 years after the fact? And if you had asked me that question an hour 
into this 83-minute movie, I would still probably say the same thing. Why do we need a sequel to this movie 10 years after the fact? Um, And that's when the movie takes the biggest 180. I don't think I've ever seen a movie go from a D-plus to a B-plus so fucking fast. Like, the fact that... And it's probably not an hour in. It was probably like 45, 50, but it's close. It's like very late in the game because it's it's pretty much all like kind of boring standard slasher stuff. And then this fucking pool scene happens, which the infamous pool scene, which I feel like a lot of p- people have kind of cited, but that pool scene drops and you're like, oh shit, we're in a whole nother movie. Like talk about wowing them in the end. This movie fucking did that, man. Like, they pulled out that pool scene, and then they pulled out, uh, which I thought was even better, the final scene, which is of this, the fiery car chase scene set to an air supply song, which I feel like that's where you gotta go in terms of horror and stuff. I feel like I've, I feel like I'm always citing that shit. But yeah, like that, that uh, car chase sequence even better man even fucking better and like that is you know we walked out of that movie and we're like yeah the you know like the ending really pulled it together and like i'm still thinking about um those last couple minutes how fucking fast that it turned it was insane like i like you i would say watch the movie but you can't just skip to the end you can't just youtube the last two scenes or whatever the fuck like you gotta i feel like you gotta stick in with it um you know, and experience kind of that first hour where you're just like, I don't know, like, why? And then experience that shift, that complete just 180. And you're like, oh, man, we're in a we're in a whole different movie now, man. And um, also on Netflix that I feel like was uh, a great one was the movie Dude. Uh, that is the uh, it was written and directed by Olivia Milch who co-wrote Ocean's 8. And this has Aquafina, Lucy Hale, Alexander Ship, And it's, uh, again, it's another, like, coming of age. It's a dark comedy, too, for sure. Uh, but it's, you know, it's basically about four, four best friends, four best friends in high school, uh, four girls. And, you know, it's a coming of age movie, uh, which is really well done. And I think it fits in a lot with Flower. I think Dude Flower, Never Going Back, and Ibiza are like the the quartet of really great um, raunchy girl comedies that came out this year. Um, oh, what else? Oh, well, uh, there was uh, McQueen, which I thought was, that was my favorite documentary that I saw last year. Um, Teen Titans Go to the Movies. That was my favorite animated movie um, of last year. Although, uh, uh, Into the Spider-Verse was a close second, but, uh, Teen Titans, like, <laughs> like, it, um, it, it also has some of the best, like, songs in it, like, Trey Parker-level, uh, great songs that, um, are not only, like, very satirical, but also just, like, genuinely good, like, very catchy, like, Michael Bolton sings one of them, which is probably the best one in the movie, um, uh what else we got here oh i know we got oh i got black panther on there and there was something that you i know that when you guys talked about it um one thing that i think was sorely not 
uh, talked about was the score. Ludwig Gordon's score in Black Panther, definitely the not only the best score of the year, but the best Marvel score uh, for sure. That was just next level. Um, and really, you know, I kind of half jokingly said that after it was over that Ryan Coogler made a made a DC movie with Marvel money, but it felt like that. It really did because you know it was his vision. And I feel like other than like Iron Man 3 and the Guardians movies, you know, we don't don't really see that that often. At least it didn't feel like this one felt very much like Ryan Coogler's vision up on the screen, which I think that elevates it. I mean, plus it was just a fucking rad movie. But um, so anyway, yeah, just Ludwig Gordon's score. That was not shouted out, obviously. Um, so I want to say that. Uh, and, uh, yeah. Oh. Oh. Okay. How can I forget? How can I forget? Um, um, uh, it just came back to me. Going back to Aquaman. I'll bring it back around, and then I swear I'll be done. Uh, dude. The fucking Black Manta montage in Aquaman, where he's building his suit, is gotta be one of the most intense, insane fucking raddest scenes in the whole movie where it's it's no good by Depeche Mode playing over the whole thing and you're just like oh my god I can't believe I can't believe this movie best best movie ever maybe it's it's up there it's great 2018 all right um so that is probably gonna do it for our top 10 episode this week um we have provided you with our top tens, but we also want to know what uh, your, the listeners' top tens are. Um, we are going to create a little uh, form for you to fill out over at thespoilerwarning.com slash top tens. Top ten? No, yeah, top ten. Uh, spoilerwarning.com slash top ten, that's T-O-P one zero. <laughs> um, if you go there, um, there will be ten fields for you to fill in, and uh, you can put in what your top tens were. Um and uh, we will randomly select somebody who submits uh, their top 10 list to us to receive a free gift of one of the films on your list. We'll send you a digital code on your platform of choice. Maybe we'll watch all of them also. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in in theory, we will have already seen most of the things that made people's top 10s. Um, But but yeah, we will send, we'll randomly select somebody and send a download code whatever on your platform of choice so that you can have one of the items on your list um we'll contact you and ask you which one you want and uh figure out how to give that to you um but yeah um so sounds like fun yeah i'm into it (laughs) hopefully you enjoy that um maybe we'll even add a little field um that you can enter a film that we have not reviewed this year that you saw that you want to see a review from Mm. us and then maybe we can do a listener requested follow-up review um for that randomly selected thing as long as we get escape room in there still i'm fine (laughs) (laughs) um but yeah that is going to bring us to the end of this episode of the spoiler warning podcast Stephen Miller, if people want to find you through the week, where can they do that? Uh, people can go to twitter.com slash sdavidmiller or sdavidmiller.com, where I imagine I'm going to do a write-up that completely contradicts this list. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, people can find me at ChristopherInRealLife.com or Twitter.com slash ChristopherIRL. You can find the podcast over at TheSpoilerWarning.com where you can get a bunch of the back episodes of the show. If you want to know when the episodes go live, you can follow us at Twitter.com slash SpoilerWarning or like us at Facebook.com slash SpoilerWarning. If you want to subscribe to us, you can do so in Overcast, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are found. Uh, if you want to get a hold of us directly, you can send an email to fans at thespoilerwarning.com or you can use the contact form on our site. Music for this episode will come from the soundtrack to nothing. I don't know why I said that, because I was on autopilot, even though we haven't recorded an episode for two months. Hmm. Uh, music for this episode will come from something. Usually, for the end of the year episodes, I use the latest DJ Earworm recap hmm. of all the pop songs from that year. That's probably playing underneath. If not, it will be the Peacock's Nice. Warning. Old school. Warning is the title of the song, which was one of the original themes uh, that we played uh, when we first started the pod- back podcast. Back in 1973. Back in <laughs> um, but yeah, thank you very much for listening. <laughs> <laughs> We're at what, like three and a half? <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long time. Oh, fuck me. Oh, we are at three hours and 17 minutes. Nice. Oh, Jesus Christ. The fans want to hear it. I did not realize that (laughs) at all. Yeah, Joanna said goodnight to me like an hour ago. (laughs) And uh, all that was real time. We're going to leave it in. No, Um, we're good. uh, Yeah, thank you very much for joining me. If you made it it as far, you are the fucking real heroes. Yeah. Um, Sorry, Neil Armstrong. for recording. Because they're in 2X, we're in 1X. (laughs) Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um... But yeah, we will be back soon. I think uh, things are going to start hitting the glasses this weekend. Oh yeah, I can't um, wait. So you, do you still have to check out Unbreakable? I, I, oh, no, I sorry. saw Unbreakable. Uh, you need to watch I, Split. I revisited Unbreakable. I'm watching Split this week. Okay, I'll you. be ready for it. Okay, so we will have a review of Glass later this week. So uh, take care, and we will see you then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Turning it up.